Welcome back, welcome back. Shout out to KAMP Student Radio at the University. We're listening to John Stewart. Sam Bankman III became a player, not problem. just because of his whatever crypto and hedge fund and Alameda and uh, FTT tokens. He became a player because he had millions of dollars to give to the political system. That's how he insinuated himself, and he did it as much as he's doing his Chauncey Gardner routine now in all of his interviews. <laughs> like, I don't know how this happened. I just woke up. Uh, you know, the, the intention was, I think, to corrupt the parts of the system that he knew needed to be corrupted for him to carry on his scheme course. unfettered. Yeah, all this comes down to transparency, right? Mm-hmm. Where there is no transparency, there is extraordinary risk. And we all try to shortcut things through trust, through brands, et cetera. And whether it's authoritative regimes, whether it's the United States, whether it's dealing with digital, whether it's dealing with AI, whether it's dealing with pharmaceuticals, where you find opacity and lack of transparency, you're going to find fraud at one level or another. And so when it comes to legislating Mm -hmm. any of this, it comes down to who's willing to keep the kimono open. And so where we can legislate for transparency, where you have to disclose all these things. Because it's digital, it's easier to disclose. It's mm-hmm. easier to review. It's easier to analyze. But we have no transparency. And as long as that's the case, SBF can do what he did. What he did. Just like Donald Trump used to say, yeah, I know these politicians because I gave them all this money and they did do right. what I said. You know, it, the game But isn't it a changed. matter of degree, though? Because when you think about, okay, there's no transparency on, we knew that this guy was giving people money. But I think when the Supreme Court redefined corruption as it must be explicit quid pro quo, we lost a really great tool at rooting out this kind of insinuation. And I'll go even further. You know, when I look at the the intricate workings of Wall Street, it doesn't look that much different from the shit that Sam Bankman Freed pulled. Of course not. And that the, the legalized corruption that we have in this country looks very similar to everybody wants to go, well, that was a, clearly a Ponzi scheme. Well, how the fuck is it different from a lot of the stuff that I see at the heart of congressional stock trades and conflict of interest on Wall Street and payment for order flows and all that other shit that goes on there? It, it's not different. I mean, money buys power, period, end of story. And once you get it, there's different ways of of confirming it. You know, in the case of Elon, he buys the platform. In the case right. of Sam Bankman Freeze, he bought politicians. And particularly in an area that people don't fully understand, like crypto. You know, it, it, it I heard this line the other day. It, it takes a couple of frauds to pop a bubble, right? A financial bubble. It took right. Enron and WorldCom MCI. It Now it's going to take... You know, what we saw with um, with Sam and uh, who was the, with Terra and Luna and all the others there. And the last few decades of globalization allowed corporations to scour the planet for the cheapest labor and loosest regulations, devastating the working class. The auto industry left Michigan and Ohio for Mexico and China. Textile companies left North Carolina for Sri Lanka, Taiwan, and Vietnam. And heavy machinery manufacturer Caterpillar shipped jobs from Illinois to fucking, wait, what? They, to Texas? They went to Texas? That can't be right. Maybe current Texas Governor Greg Abbott can explain. We have low taxes, reasonable regulations, right-to-work laws. I think I understand now. 
as China is to America, Texas is to Illinois. <laughs> now, if you don't speak business euphemism, allow me to translate what the governor said. Low tax means less money to spend on infrastructure. Reasonable regulations means you weren't using that finger anyway. And right to work means weak unions, which means companies can get away with lower pay and fewer benefits, and they do. The last few decades of globalization allowed corporations to scour the planet for the cheapest labor and loosest regulations, devastating the working class. The auto industry left Michigan and Ohio for Mexico and China. Textile companies left North Carolina for Sri Lanka, Taiwan, and Vietnam. And heavy machinery manufacturer Caterpillar shipped jobs from Illinois to fucking, wait, what? <laughs> they, to Texas? They went to Texas? That can't be right. Maybe current Texas Governor Greg Abbott can explain. We have low taxes, reasonable regulations, right-to-work laws. I think I understand now. As China is to America, Texas is to Illinois. <laughs> now, if you don't speak business euphemism, allow me to translate what the governor said. Low tax means less money to spend on infrastructure. Reasonable regulations means you weren't using that finger anyway. And right to work means weak unions, which means companies can get away with lower pay and fewer benefits, and they do. The last the the eight movement uh, got, uh, you know, it, it was a movement to make a lot of money and to stick it to Wall Street because this is a generation. Their formative experience was their parents losing their jobs or losing their homes or friends, family, you know, suffering right. to, during the financial crisis this is before they had their own money to invest. But they all remember it or have heard about it, depending on where you are in the 18 to 35 year old spectrum. And so Wall Street was seen as a bad guy, not rich people. It wasn't class warfare because they like Elon Musk, who was, you know, the richest man on earth at the time this episode happened. And he, he sort of egged, egged it on, you know, also made a lot of money off of uh, young retail investors, by the way. They didn't like Wall Street uh, and they wanted to give it a black eye. They weren't out there to expose corruption. They didn't know what payment for order flow was until this whole system had shut down. And it shut down because Robin Hood and its ilk made it too popular and the system fried its circuits. That's what happened. Right. It wasn't a conspiracy to, to shut it down. But now it's been turned into a, like this kind of vendetta when, like, you know, guys, look at, look at why were you doing all this in the first place? Who got you to do all this? Their intention isn't really the issue. Whether it, the issue is what they exposed. And I also have maybe a, a little bit of pushback on the idea that they shouldn't be allowed to be as uh, to try the get rich quick scheme that many people on Wall Street do. Like, mm -hmm. How is Citadel not a get rich quick scheme? It's just one that's got a lot of power. Like you have, here's the thing that I like about the eight movement. They're not afraid of any of these guys. So the working class needs to take its medicine for the overall good of the country. It's going to be painful, but it's necessary. Hey, what about since CEO pay has far outpaced worker wage increases? Should we come up with a medicine that deals with that? Some of these people are worth a lot more than they make. They're the ones, Judge, to your point, that are producing the wealth. These are small countries these people are managing. Oh, my God. We should be praising these people to heaven. The way I see it, you need to look at CEOs like they're great athletes. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I see it. And thus, the problem with inflation. Our leading economic minds have one and only one fix for easing the pain of inflation for the working people. And that fix is the Fed raises interest rates to crush demand and lower wages. Because wages rising 
must be the principal cause of inflation. What? Is there anything else, though, that the chairman of the Fed wanted to add to that? I don't think wages are, are the principal story of, of why prices are going up. I don't think that. Then what? Greed. So it turns out the only tool we have to bring down inflation doesn't actually address the principal reasons inflation went up, just the part that helped you. The factors impacting inflation globally are complicated. Inflation, we have to remember, was caused by COVID. We've got supply chain issues. It's got everything to do with Russia invading Ukraine. Labor shortage. Drought in California. Tax. Mm avian flu corporate greed corporate avian greed (laughs) yes it turns out one of the things rising much faster than wages is profit u.s corporate profit margins are the biggest they've been since the 1950s oil companies the highest profits in 115 years meatpacking profits 300 percent up egg profits 65% 65% up in one year. I mean, for God's sake, if it helps, I'll just start laying eggs. Can't be that hard. So the working class needs to take its medicine for the overall good of the country. It's going to be painful, but it's necessary. Hey, what about since CEO pay has far outpaced worker wage increases? Should we come up with a medicine that deals with that? Some of these people are worth a lot more than they make. They're the ones, Judge, to your point, that are producing the wealth. These are small countries Bullshit. these people are managing. Oh, my God. We should be praising Bandits. these people to heaven. The way I see it, you need to look at CEOs like they're great athletes. Under the current tax structure, you'll get less by $1.5 billion in your 2023 budget. That could fund the entire North Carolina Community College, could make North Carolina Community College free for everybody. It's not an either or, John, particularly here in North Carolina. These guys North have got Carolina. billions of dollars mm-hmm. sitting there. Which guys? Our, the Republican legislature. Right. Billions of dollars that they have refused to invest because that what they want to do is to lie in wait and cut more taxes for corporations and wealthy people because what they want down the road is lower overall taxes for corporations and the wealth. How much lower can they go for zero? Well, corporate taxes aren't quite there. They're like a two and a half right now, but they... Um, it says North Carolina is often called the best state for business. One reason the GOP led North Carolina Senate is doubling down on tax cuts for corporations and the rich. Last season, sat down with Governor Ray 
Cooper. It's a Democrat to discuss. I want to go there. It's supposed to be by 2030. We still Democrat got time to turn that around. I want a progressive tax system to make sure that wealthy people and corporations pay their fair share. Under the current, I used to be like you, weak, sad, Hello, unable to get erections. <laughs> Maybe it's about time you stopped begging big city liberal politicians for electricity and started taking it from the sun. Because a real man wouldn't rely on a communist wire to keep his family warm and his beer cold. The sun is hot as shit. Look that sun right in the eye and say, listen, pal, you work for me now. Be a man. Man God in charge of the sun. Sun-powered God man. Get boners, no problem. Be a man. Sack up and go solar. Corporate America gets all the benefits of American stability and fiscal policy, but bears none of the responsibility. Walmart. They make billions in profits. Their workers are one of the largest uh, corporate users of social service programs. Why don't Walmart workers share in the profits of Walmart? In the capitalist system, um, companies have a right to um, Tribute profits to their shareholders. Mm -hmm. This is the insidious part, I think, of when we talk about that we have a free market system. Because what it makes it seem like is that the natural order of things is that Walmart makes billions in profits and can distribute it to its shareholders. And that's just how it goes. But we know that we, the taxpayers, are subsidizing their workforce with food stamps. They're getting the benefit. American stability and fiscal policy, but bears none of the responsibility. Walmart. They make billions in profits. Burn Their workers are one of the largest uh, corporate users of me. social service programs. Why don't Walmart workers share in the profits of Walmart? In a capitalist system, um, companies have a right to... In Florida right now, you're, you're in Florida. That's correct. They're about to pass a permitless carry. What would be the advantage, safety-wise, of permitless carry? There is no benefit to the community. It has become a political issue, and so, somewhere along the lines, we stopped listening to law enforcement. Uh, the men and women um, who, who patrol the streets uh, every night at risk of their own lives, well, go ask the street cop what he or she thinks about um, encountering lots of people with a gun stuck in their waistband. It's not going to make our communities safer. It's going to make them more dangerous. In Florida right now, you're, you're in Florida. That's correct. They're about to pass. The problem with uh, freedom is that uh, more often than not, people who call for Come on, man. I give you vision today. Give you back your sight. Hang with me, bro.
This court and, and the, the Republican majority have found their way to minority rule. And that's the stuff that's baked into the constitutional... America, if there's one thing that we do well, it's in... Speaking frankly, 70% under the... Absolutely, Lutley, that's the core of any real... So you, you, you were going to say... He was going to say... We are talking about election integrity, children expressing gender dysphoria. World War III, the American taxpayer, foreign policy. The more guns you have, the more violence you have. Inflation! Why can't we be okay riding 4 and 5% while still trying to maintain as many jobs as we can possibly maintain? I guess that means just giving people lots of money. And just Handing don't people money. slippery slope my... I'm not talking don't. about irresponsibility. Why can't you say the election in 2020 was not stolen or fraudulent? I will tell you this. As I said, this I, is blowing my is mind. Is it really? Who do you think the teams are? for World War III. So first, I'm disputing the premise. We're not, we're not heading to World War III. Germany, any concerns about getting them back in the game? 98% of the young people who have gender dysphoria, they are able to move past that wow. without uh, that medical treatment. That's, an, that's an, an incredibly made up figure. You don't mind infringing yeah. free speech to protect children from this amorphous thing that you think of. But when it comes to children that have died, you don't give a flying fuck to stop that because that shall not be infringed. That is hypocrisy at its highest order. Absolutely. So the question becomes, are we getting our world peace? Absolutely. Thank God, Gavin Newsom's quite fundamentally loopy. That's the core of any real. So you, you, you were going to say fuck. He, he was going to say. Fuck. We were talking about election. And So the question becomes, are we getting our world peace money's worth? Because over the years, we've employed many different costly international agreement enforcing measures. We've tried the bomb and leave methodology. It's a bit of an ordinance sampler that says we care, but not enough for boots on the ground. That I know about. Does it work? Well, it's more cost-effective, but it's, pardon the phrase, hit or miss. And then, of course, we offer countries the platinum package, the bomb and stay, your Koreas, your Vietnams, your Afghanistans, your Iraqs. You may ask yourself, why do we have to stay so long in those places? Well, it turns out that when you bomb the shit out of a place, the instability you create needs to be managed. For instance, when we took out Saddam Hussein, the craziest thing happened. ISIS originated with Al-Qaeda in Iraq going back to 2005, 6, 7. We had to stay there to deal with the ISIS threat, which we caused by taking out Saddam. It totally worked. ISIS has spread far beyond its strongholds in Syria and Iraq. In fact, U.S. military officials tell NBC News they worry about the growing signs of ISIS presence in a half dozen other places. 
You see, sometimes a side effect of spreading democracy is accidentally spreading ISIS and a, a refugee crisis. Moving on. Maybe. At least 37 million people. It said dwarfs. And have displaced uh, we had to stay there to people. deal with the ISIS threat, which we caused by taking out Saddam. It totally worked. ISIS has spread far beyond its strongholds in Syria and Iraq. In fact, U.S. military officials tell NBC News they worry about the growing signs of ISIS presence in a half dozen other places. You see, sometimes a side effect of spreading democracy is accidentally spreading ISIS and a refugee crisis. Moving on. Maybe... You're looking for more of a people. refresher package without all that collateral damage, in which case America will teach. Tell NBC News they worry about the growing signs of ISIS presence in a half dozen other places. You see, sometimes a side effect of spreading democracy is accidentally spreading ISIS and a refugee crisis. Moving on. Maybe you're looking for more of a refresher package people. without all that collateral damage. John Stewart. Where are you going, cutie? Come back, sweetie. Uh, poor little ragtag boy, huh? Little pinky. My handsome pinky. USA legal wars of aggression have in, uh, against other countries have displaced at least 37 million people in the Middle East. Hmm. In which case, America will teach you how to bomb. We offer military training to nascent democratic republics looking to shore up those aspirations. We do that a lot. And while that occasionally does lead to newly trained militaries overthrowing those nascent democracies, got to risk it to get the biscuit. <laughs> and then there's just the nascent democracies. Got to risk it to get the biscuit. <laughs> hmm. Nascent democracies. U.S. trained officers. Gotta risk it to get the We are the problem. <laughs> and then there's just the straight fucking Coups. Have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? 
Oh, probably. But uh, it was for the good of the system in order to avoid the uh, communists from taking no, over. We don't do that CIA. now, though. We don't mess around other people's well, elections. Yeah. Mm, nom, 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 nom. <laughs> She asked you if we do coups, and your response was the same as you get when you're lapping up soft ice cream. Gross. Are we overthrowing leaders? <laughs> the point is, being the world's policeman is a big job, because the world is a very dangerous place filled with many dangerous weapons and here's where it gets tricky we are also the world's largest weapons dealer while we are personally enforcing global security agreements we are also seeding the world with global chaos starter kits and while occasionally two of the countries tweeting that says would you like some bombs Oh, well. Trump, it's Dixon White here, sending a video letter directly to you, sir. And the only reason I call you sir is because the office that you hold is supposed to be a respectable office. But so I just want to speak directly to you, Mr. Trump. I know you may never get this video. Maybe you will, though, because at least I have white skin like you. But first, I wanted to applaud you for one thing, and only one thing. Um, many racists in politics are very covert. So I applaud you for being an open racist, and I applaud you for at least letting us see just how racist you are. And it's, now it's, it's well-established worldwide that you are a bona fide white supremacist. Um, there's not a nation that hasn't condemned you as a racist. So you have dishonored and disgraced one of the, the highest office offices in the land. But I wanted to say yeah, one well, thing. You made a comment yesterday guys. about shithole countries, poor, black, brown Again? countries. So because they're poor, because they're black Turned and brown and not white or European, country. You consider them shitholes. Well, I wanted to give you an accurate definition of a shithole nation. A shithole nation, by definition, would be a nation like America that allows and tolerates oh, a racist to operate in their highest office. Stop negotiating the with presidency. the terrorists. America. That is a shithole nation. A nation that tolerates a racist president. There is no worse pile of shit or turd in the toilet out of all the other countries than a great nation like America that allows its president to be an open white supremacist. And then to allow them to continue to function as president. That's the biggest turd in the pot. Or as you say, the biggest shithole. Why? 
because you, Mr. Trump, are the shit, the turd, in the White House that's staining and putting the foul odor all over our nation. And of course, the only reason you're there is because you're a racist. You're a complete and utter idiot with no competency whatsoever to be where you're at. The only reason you're there is because we had a black president and our racist nation wanted a racist president after a black president. So until America can get past its racism, which I don't know if it ever has, because there's one thing about black folks, Mr. Trump, black folks have always understood one thing. The more things change in this country, the more they stay the same. You are living proof that any white person, no matter how racist they are, and matter of fact, racism is actually more of a compliment in this nation. It's like apple pie racism in America. They go hand in hand. If you're a white American, you're a racist, and you've and you've proven that. And not only you're racist, if you're a racist, you get rewarded for being a racist in this country. Why? Because we are a racist organization called America. Fact. And nothing has changed in 400 years. What has really changed? We're still seeing black and brown folks executed in the street. Not that you and Jeff Sessions or any of your racist motherfucking cabinet care. You don't give a fuck about justice for people of color. You're all a group of white nationalists. So I just want to tell you, here's one white guy, and I'm telling you personally, Donald Trump, kiss my white fat ass. I hate you, Donald Trump. I literally hate you. And I pray to God you get impeached. You're an embarrassment to our nation and upon the world. Please do us all a favor and resign. Resign. The only people that want you in office are more racist. And yes, I know that our country, the majority of white people are racist. And the majority of white people totally and completely support you. I really believe that. Because they're not supporting you, then they're silently ignoring your racism. Says what I said to Donald Diablo Trump about five, oh, five years ago. <laughs> Chicky, why do you keep biting me like that? Why are you attacking me? Anyhow, please do us all a favor. In Congress, please act to remove this racist motherfucker and his racist administration, or Congress is no better. Please remove this racist motherfucker from office. It's 2018, guys. And if we can't remove this racist motherfucker from office, America is no better than it was 400 years ago. For Trump, it's Dixon White here sending a video letter to you, sir. The only reason I call you sir Can't he be impeached After leaving office So we can strip him of his presidential perks Taxpayer paid perks
fucking traitor, Trista for prize. Trump for prison. Fucking traitor. Kent Old Diaper Donalds. Fucking traitor, take it, put an eight in there so it's not flagged. Fiatch. Daytona Beach, Florida. MS Popok. Is because the office that you hold is supposed to be a respectable office. But so I just want to speak directly to you, Mr. Trump. I know you may never get this video. Maybe you will, though, because at least I have white skin like you. But first, I wanted to applaud you for one thing, and only one thing. Um, many racists in politics are very covert. So I applaud you for being an open racist, and I applaud you for at least letting us see just how racist you are. And it's now it's it's well established worldwide that you are a bona fide white supremacist. Um, there's not a nation that hasn't condemned you as a racist. So you have dishonored and disgraced one of the the highest office offices in the land. But I wanted to say one thing. You made a comment yesterday about shithole countries, poor, black, brown countries. So because they're poor, because they're black and brown and not white or European, you consider them shitholes. Well, I wanted to give you an accurate definition of a shithole nation. A shithole nation, by definition, would be a nation like America that allows and tolerates a racist to operate in their highest office, the president. Always on point, this guy. On point. That is a shithole nation. A nation that tolerates a racist president. There is no worse pile of shit or turd in the toilet out of all the other countries that a great nation like America that allows its president to be an open white supremacist. Dick, hey, my dick sucker. My dick. Suck my dick. Me. Oh, let's go, gang. I'm amazing. I'm amazing. We got people saying BJ, BJ, Bleezy. Oh, you look like you playing the trombone at first. I didn't know. I'm over there. I mean, oh. I'm used to the.
signing a health care plan within two weeks. Or that he would release his taxes after he became president. They're extremely complex. People wouldn't understand him. Donald Trump's greatest lie was convincing you that he was like you. He convinced 62 million hardworking Americans that he was one of them. But you know that's not true. The truth is that he's nothing like you. Fact. When you, your father or grandfather, was drafted to serve in Vietnam, the call was answered. Donald Trump got five deferments. We drafted the lowest income level of America and the highest income level found a doctor that would say that they had a bonus for her. That is wrong. Fact. When you started your business, you scratched... That's funny they used John McCain to say that. Together every nickel you had and built something from nothing. Donald Trump's father gave him $11 million to start his business and just kept giving him loans every time he got into trouble. Donald Trump has never worked a hard day in his entire life. Fact. When your small business was in trouble, you knuckled down, worked harder, and made sacrifices until you got back on your feet. Donald Trump declared bankruptcy six times. See, Donald Trump is nothing like you. You haven't been accused by 30 women of sexual assault or rape. You haven't destroyed families and put children in cages. You haven't let Russia put bounties on American soldiers' heads. You haven't called American soldiers and veterans losers and suckers. You aren't responsible for over 185,000 deaths because you failed to do your job. You're nothing like Donald Trump. Signing a health care plan within two weeks. Or that he would release his taxes after he became president. They're extremely complex. People wouldn't understand. Excellent video to help Trump supporters snap out of it. one for the DNC war room to help Trump supporters snap out of it. Donald 
Trump's father gave him $11 million to start his business and just kept giving him loans every time he got into trouble. Donald Trump has never worked a hard day in his entire life. Fact, when your small business was in trouble, you knuckled down, worked harder, and made sacrifices until you got back on your feet. Donald Trump declared bankruptcy six times. See, Donald Trump is nothing like you. You haven't been accused by 30 women of sexual assault or rape. You haven't destroyed families and put children in cages. You haven't let Russia put bounties on American soldiers' heads. You haven't called American soldiers and veterans losers and suckers. You aren't responsible for over 185,000 deaths because you failed to do your job. You're nothing like Donald Trump. We'll also share this on Facebook, so share all, share this with all your Trump supporter friends and family. Trump supporters, when they hear Daddy Trump is holding a rally in the middle of nowhere. This seems to be the new thing. Leave what some transphobe like thinks a gorilla is running around. a snarky comment and then block. But let me tell you why I love this one. Sweetie, I'm not pretending to be anyone or anything. I'm me. You're just confused because I don't look or dress the way you think I should. To which I really have just one thing to say. That's a you problem. And if you and those like you would actually deal with your own problems, we wouldn't be having these discussions. Legislatures could get down to actually dealing with real problems in the states instead of harassing people who don't conform to whatever stereotype you think we should. And our court systems could actually spend their times solving real problems for people instead of wasting years on phony issues and political nonsense. Yeah. Bottom line, and I don't and want resources. to try to speak for all transgender people, but I will speak for me and maybe a few more. We aren't looking for your approval because our existence isn't something over which you have any approval or disapproval, or for that matter, anything else. Really, what we're looking for is for you to mind your own business and let us mind ours. <laughs> so go ahead and do what Shay did after she got spanked. She blocked. Thank you for stopping by. This seems to be the new thing. Leave what some transphobe thinks is a snarky comment. You didn't give birth to your children. You were the supermarket donor. Harsh but factual. You can pretend to be a woman, but it's only pretend. Donald Trump hates poor white people. Why the racial specificity there? Because white is the only race that requires a qualifier for his sorry ass. I mean, he hates all black and brown people, 
And don't get him started on the Chinese. But if you're white, you have about a 15% chance he doesn't actively hate you. That's the approximate percentage of white families in America that are middle class. But other than that, like you're just regular old middle class white, at best, he might be generally ambivalent about your existence. But if you're one of my fellow trailer Americans, make no mistake, he fucking hates you. You disgust him and always have. And look, like all Americans who have sexually assaulted someone on a Gulf Stream or given a thoroughbred a racist name, Trump hates all poor people. Of course he does. But I think that him hating poor white people deserves a distinction because, as we all know, poor white people are supposed to be Donald Trump's rock, his kid rock, the sleeveless foundation upon which his white trash empire is constructed. Without y'all, he is nothing. So surely he appreciates that fact, right? Well, ask the fucking military. Before Donald Trump, every conservative at every level of politics in this country agreed supporting the troops is non-negotiable. You wake up in the morning, you support the troops before you brush your teeth. You go to bed at night, say your prayers, support the troops. You're watching your wife get railed by a pool boy, you better support the troops before you even think about finishing, son. Knowing how to adequately support the troops is the second thing they teach you at Republican school. The first thing is how to only say the N-word in private. Supporting the troops is sacrosanct to the American GOP, and yet Donald Trump referred to disabled veterans as suckers and losers. See, he thinks it's stupid to make that kind of sacrifice even when it's in service of the country he presides over. So just imagine how grossed out he is by coal miners. Y'all think he looks at you any differently? You think when he talked about keeping low-income housing out of the suburbs, he meant only poor black people's homes? Try throwing up a single white in a cul-de-sac and see what happens. They mean you, too. And I know he took the time to make a bunch of promises to you back in 2016. How's all that working out? Can your mama afford her medicine yet? Did the Mexicans bring your job back? Ain't shit better, is it? And some of y'all might be thinking, oh, fuck you, Trey. You run off to California. You don't know nothing about it. Hey, look, don't let the fancy beach plans fool you. I'm still one of y'all whether you like it or not. It ain't really up to me. You know how in Toy Story 4 the kid puts googly eyes on that spork and it comes to life and starts hollering at the main toys like, I can never be like y'all. I'm trash. Trash. Remember that? Well, that's me in Hollywood. I may be out here putting the bass in Ambassador, but I know what it's like. Damn near everybody in my family lost their livelihood when the factory left. The opioid epidemic ruined my mama's life and put countless other relatives in the ground. And I worry about my mama every goddamn day because she's 81 years old in a pandemic and the hospital just closed for the second time in a calendar year. I fucking know. I know what it's like. And I know Donald Trump ain't done shit about it because he ain't gonna do shit about it. He don't care to. You want Donald Trump to care about you? Fund a super PAC, buy some ad space, pay for a tea time. Otherwise, put the red hat back on and shut the fuck up. That's how he sees it. Tell me I'm lying. Some of y'all might be thinking, okay, fine, he hates us for hell. Who don't? He can just join the club. And you're right. Nobody cares about us. I'm not going to stand here and bullshit y'all like, like coastal liberals or big Democrat gives a single fuck about what's going on in the trailer because they don't. I do think there are some people running this year that might care, that will try and y'all shouldn't write them off just because they got a D next to their name. But look, I don't know what the answer is. And I don't know how we fix what's wrong with rural America. But what I do know for damn sure is the big city blue blood motherfucker who was born with a silver spoon up his ass and thinks he's smarter and better than everybody else because of it ain't the man for the job. And I think deep down, y'all know it too. You and your papa. I love y'all. Donald mm -hmm. Trump hates poor white people. 
Why the racial specificity there? Because white is the only race that requires a qualifier for his sorry ass. I mean, he hates all black and brown people, and don't get him started on the Chinese. But if you're white, you have about a 15% chance he doesn't actively hate you. That's the approximate percentage of white families in America that are millionaires. But other than that, like you're just regular old middle class white, at best he might be generally ambivalent about your existence. But if you're one of my fellow trailer Americans, make no mistake, he fucking hates you. You disgust him and always have. And look, like all Americans who have sexually assaulted someone on a Gulf Stream or given a thoroughbred a racist name, Trump hates all poor people. Of course he does. But I think that him hating poor white people deserves a distinction because, as we all know, poor white people are supposed to be Donald Trump's rock, his kid rock, the sleeveless foundation upon which his white trash empire is constructed. Without y'all, he is nothing. So surely he appreciates that fact, right? Well, ask the fucking military. Before Donald Trump, every conservative at every level of politics in this country agreed supporting the troops is non-negotiable. You wake up in the morning, you support the troops before you brush your teeth. You go to bed at night, say your prayers, support the troops. You're watching your wife get railed by a pool boy, you better support the troops before you even think about finishing, son. Knowing how to adequately support the troops is the second thing they teach you at Republican school. The first thing is how to only say the N-word in private. Supporting the troops is sacrosanct to the American GOP, and yet Donald Trump referred to disabled veterans as suckers and losers. See, he thinks it's stupid to make that kind of sacrifice yeah, even when Richard, it's in... It says Richard Hitchens. Trick Carter. Slay! <laughs> I heard it was a laser, so that way... Shut the fuck up! Shut up! You know where you're hearing all these fucking laser conspiracy theories from? The same fucking people who constantly tell you climate change isn't real. The same fucking people who somehow are always being paid by the same super PACs over and over again. The same 501c3 organizations. The same nonprofits that happen to get all their fucking money from oil seemingly always seem to show the fuck up out of nowhere every time there's a natural disaster that's been made worse by fucking climate change to tell you that it's actually some grand conspiracy by a group of people controlling a laser beam from fucking space. How is it that the same fucking assholes with laser beams are always seeming to do laser beam shit, but only when it comes to climate change shit? The shit that happened in Maui was that the, the land was so fucking dry and there was a large hurricane off the coast. The combination of the two meant any spark, any fucking spark. You know, sparks, the things that are fired in your fucking brain right now, any spark would have set off a giant conflagration, a huge fire. In the the middle same of fires the that are going across all of Canada. Why are these happening? Is it space lasers? Seven is it, at the is same it time. Fertilizer? No. The ground's fucking dry. It's fucking dry because we don't have regular rains anymore. We either get hit by torrential downpours that cause mass flooding or full-on droughts. There's no in-between, fuckheads. And why is there no in-between? Because the same motherfuckers who pay all these goddamn nonprofits who put all this money into fucking podcasts and fucking YouTubers all day are out here telling you it's not because of oil. It's never because of oil. The same fucking people who told you that 9-11 was holograms never brought up the Saudi connection. Put it together, you dumb cunt. I heard it was a laser so What I'm about to say... Is Hold on. I heard. This is, uh, here's this. 
John Stewart playlist on TikTok and other creators. We're tripping through TikTok tonight. This is um, Pearl Mania 500. I'm about to say is allegedly. This is coming from a direct source. Um, when the fire department went into, please guys, if you are involved in this fire and triggered by talking about the deceased, please don't watch what I'm about to say. Please, when the fire department... When the fire department when the fire department went into what was left of the elderly community oh um you could not step anywhere without stepping over somebody's loved one i think that they are grossly downplaying the number of victims because all attention is on Maui at this time on Hawaii and if the world really knew just how bad how tragic it was there would be an outcry there would be a demand for answers and investigations and that's what I am thinking that is the reason why why torture people we all know we're not talking about it but we all know somebody had commented um why or where were the videos of these parents who had you know and their house was on fire with their their children and it where are these parents videos um i can't speak for these parents i know as a parent though i probably wouldn't i would not be focusing i wouldn't even be on my mind to post videos about it to talk about it i would probably be in denial or in you know a, a ward or something for my mental health um also Local people are posting videos. <clears throat> this goes back to what I said previously. You guys are not seeing the same um, social media feeds and media and news that is um, as people in Hawaii. The people of Hawaii are being offered $700 vouchers. I believe Biden was the one that announced it, that they will be giving the people of Hawaii $700. That is an absolute slap in the face. I am forced to wonder why we couldn't take some of the billions that are being sent to other places why we can't send it to rebuild you know your your country i mean you guys they are saying that there's help out there and that they sent help it's a lie allegedly maui is not getting help they are they are doing this themselves and they're exhausted we have a military on the next island, our neighboring island. There's a whole military force. Why can't we have our brothers and sisters that are, are, you know, in the military on the next island over come over and help? And all I'm hearing is that let's move on with our lives and get back to normal. And Maui is still open. And the people who have just lost their loved ones have to go serve or, or provide service to the people who are coming over. I mean, guys, there's over 1,400 people missing. 1,400. And... 
we know and it's a slap in the face to pretend like it's not that drastic like it's not that bad it's bad so where is the military and i don't want to hear what the news is saying about fema's there and red cross is there to help you know what fema did when their few guys showed up to maui they basically barged in there and were like, okay, great job. We got it. Like, we got it from here. You don't have anything. You haven't done anything. You don't know anything. And you're still not helping. I don't understand. You guys are seeing things like it was a bushfire. And did they tell you the bushfire was put out? And that they were, the, the people were told that it was 100% contained? People are not being able to mourn. They are stuck in survival mode. And if you can only imagine the pain and anger and just all the emotions that the 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 um, magnitude of the emotions that can't be felt right now because they are stuck in survival mode and they are exhausted. I, I don't know what I can't say what is happening, but they are being blocked from helping each other. The only help is coming from surrounding islands, the, lo the locals on the surrounding islands and whatever shipments are managing to get through with you guys' donations. I gotta wonder too, when, when media dies down <clears throat> and coverage dies down, you know, and, and, and people are no longer, you know, watching so closely. Are they going to honor the vouchers? Are they going to honor, you know, housing, um, you know, locals? Is this all just a show? I, I have to ask these questions because I don't understand. None of it is making sense to me. These people are resilient and proud and courageous and warriors. And they will not take this you know, lying down. And I'm not insinuating anything. I'm, I'm just stating facts. So I wonder what is, what is going to happen when they say no? Because they are saying no, and, and they're only going to get louder. Let me rephrase that. We are saying no, and we are only going to get louder. Imagine having a history so bad, so vile, so violent, that you have to make it illegal to learn it. American conservatives have gone by many names. They've been called Democrats, they've been called Republicans, they've been called the Lily Whites, they've been called Klansmen, Redemptionists. They've gone by many names. But the consistent thing about American conservatism is that it has been about ensuring that capital fully controls labor and that capital controls labor without being taxed to the greatest extent possible. So they want control of labor and they don't want to be taxed. I mean, that's what the American Revolution was about, right? Think about the fact that the time that this country has had perfect, pristine capitalism was during the slavery period. This country became an empire in less than 200 years, unprecedented in the world, based on the fact that you had pure capitalism. Labor costs were a minimum. You didn't have to spend extra money feeding the enslaved people. You just fed them the scraps, right? That's why we the Caribbean Dox tale. 
they eat the ox, you get the tail, right? You just feed them the scraps, the chitlings. Think about all the food that African-Americans eat that is considered, you know, endemic African-American food. It's based on the scraps, chicken wings, neck bones. You're basically eating the main food and then throwing the things you don't want to the enslaved people. It's just that enslaved people were really super creative and made that shit tasty, right? But they were still eating the scraps of the food you had, so no extra cost there. You just throw them into a cabin, right, on the property you already own. No extra cost for that. Hey there. Welcome back. And let's pick up where we left off on the marriage trip. Too much and never enough. Thanks for 229. Okay. We're going to be listening to the audiobook of Mary L. Trump's Too Much and Never Enough. The bestseller. And everybody needs to hear this. Too much and never enough. How my family created the world's most dangerous man by Mary L. Trump. Prologue. Too much and never okay. enough. How my family created the world's most dangerous man by Mary L. Trump. Art. Edition. When Freddie had announced he was stepping away from Trump management in December 1963, Donald had been caught flat-footed. His brother's decision had come at the end of the first semester of Donald's senior year, and since his name wasn't Fred, he had no idea what his future role in the company might be. Although he did plan to work there in some capacity. Because of that uncertainty, he hadn't adequately prepared for his future beyond high school. When he graduated from New York Military Academy that spring, he had not yet been accepted into college. He asked Marianne to help him find a spot at a local school when he got back home. Freddie and Linda had a barbecue for lunch, during which Donald told them he was going to Chicago with their dad to help him with a development he was considering. Freddie's relief was palpable. Maybe Fred was beginning to accept the new reality and had decided to take Donald on as his heir apparent. Later in the afternoon, Freddie took the boys out on his yacht to do some fishing. Despite Freddie's best attempts to teach his brother the basics of the sport, Donald had never gotten the hang of it. Donald had still been at NYMA the last time they'd been on a boat together, along with Billy and a couple of Freddy's fraternity brothers. When one of them had tried to show Donald how to hold the pole properly, Donald had pulled away and said, I know what I'm doing. Yeah, buddy. And you're doing it really badly. The rest of the guys had laughed. 
Donald had thrown his pole onto the deck and stalked off toward the bow. He had been so angry, he wasn't paying attention to where he was walking, and Freddy had worried that he might walk right off the boat. Donald's fishing skills hadn't improved in the interim. When the three brothers returned from the harbor, Linda was preparing dinner. As soon as they came into the house, she could sense the tension. Something had shifted. Freddy's good mood had been replaced by a quiet, barely contained anger. Freddy didn't often lose his temper, not then, and she took it as a bad sign. He poured himself a drink. Another bad sign. Even before they sat down for dinner, Donald started in on his older brother. You know, Dad's really sick of you wasting your life, he declared, as though he'd suddenly remembered why he was there. I don't need you to tell me what Dad thinks, said Freddy, who already knew his father's opinions all too well. He says he's embarrassed by you. I don't get why you care, Freddy replied. You want to work with Dad, go ahead. I'm not interested. Freddy, he said, Dad's right about you. You're nothing but a glorified bus driver. Donald may not have understood the origin of their father's contempt for Freddy and his decision to become a professional pilot. But he had the bully's unerring instinct for finding the most effective way to undermine an adversary. Freddy understood that his brothers had been sent to deliver their father's message in person or at least Donald had. But hearing Fred's belittling words come out of his little brother's mouth broke his spirit. Linda overheard the exchange and came into the living room from the kitchen in time to see Freddy's face drained of all color. She slammed the plate she was holding onto the table and screamed at her brother-in-law, you should just keep your mouth shut, Donald. You know how hard he's had to work. You have no idea what you're talking about. Freddy didn't speak to either of his brothers for the remainder of that night, and they left for New York the next morning, a day earlier than planned. Freddy's drinking worsened. In July, TWA offered him a promotion. The airline wanted to send him to their facility in Kansas City to train him on the new 727s it was introducing to the fleet. He declined, even though Linda reminded him that he never would have disregarded an order from one of his superiors in the National Guard. He told management that having signed a year-long lease for a furnished house in Marblehead only two months earlier, he couldn't justify uprooting his young family again. In truth, Freddy had begun to suspect that his dream was coming to an end. He was losing hope that his father would accept him as a professional pilot, and without that acceptance he probably couldn't continue. He had spent his entire life up until he had left Trump management trying his best to become the person his father wanted him to be. When those attempts had repeatedly ended in failure, he had hoped that in the course of fulfilling his own dream that his father would come to accept him for who he really was. 
He had spent his childhood navigating the minefield of his father's conditional acceptance. And he knew all too well that there was only one way to receive it by being someone he wasn't and he would never be able to pull that off. His father's approval still mattered more than anything else. Fred was, and always had been, the ultimate arbiter of his children's worth, which is why, even late into her seventies, my Aunt Marianne continued to yearn for her long-dead father's praise. When TWA later offered Freddie the opportunity to fly out of Idlewild, he jumped at the chance, thinking it might be a way to salvage the situation. The move made no sense from a practical perspective, since he'd have to commute from Marblehead to New York every three or four days. Worse, it put him into closer proximity to Fred. But maybe for Freddie that was the point. Even if he couldn't get Fred's approval, it might be easier to convince his father that flying was what he should be doing if he could see it up close. In between flights, Freddy took fellow pilots back to the house to meet his family, hoping Fred might be impressed. It was a desperate move, but Freddy was desperate. In the end, it made no difference. Fred could never get past the betrayal. Although Freddy had joined ROTC and a fraternity and the flying club, things his father would have disdained but probably didn't know about. Those activities hadn't altered his plan to work for his father to ensure that the Empire would survive in perpetuity. From Fred's perspective, Freddy's leaving Trump management must have felt like an act of blatant disrespect. Ironically, it was the kind of boldness Fred had wanted to instill in his son, but it had been squandered on the wrong ambition. Instead, Fred felt that Freddy's unprecedented move undermined his authority and diminished Fred's sense that he was in control of everything, including the course of his son's life. A few weeks after the boys' visit, a summer storm thundered over Marblehead Harbor. Linda was standing in the living room ironing Freddy's white uniform shirts when the phone rang. As soon as she heard her husband's voice, she knew something was wrong. He had quit his job at TWA, he told her. The three of them needed to move back to New York as soon as possible. Linda was stunned. That Freddy would give up everything he'd worked for after only four months made no sense at all. In fact, TWA had given him an ultimatum. If he resigned, he could keep his license, otherwise, it would be forced to fire him as a result of his serious alcohol problem. If Freddy got fired, he'd likely never be able to fly again. He chose the first option, and with that their life in Marblehead was over. Just after Labor Day, the three of them moved back to the corner apartment on the ninth floor of the Highlander in Jamaica. But Freddy hadn't entirely given up on a flying career. Maybe, he thought, if he started with smaller airlines with smaller planes and shorter, less stressful routes, he could work his way back up. While Linda and Fritz settled in, Freddy went to Utica, a small city in upstate New York, 
to work for Piedmont Airlines, which flew commuter routes in the Northeast. That job lasted less than a month. He moved to Oklahoma and flew for another local airline. He was there when Fritz celebrated his second birthday. By December, he was back in Queens. His drinking was out of control, and he knew that he could no longer hack it as a pilot. The only self-made man in the family, Freddie was being slowly, inexorably dismantled. Less than a year after it had begun, Freddie's flying career was over. With no other options, he found himself standing in front of his father, who sat in his usual spot on the love seat in the library while his oldest son asked for a job that he didn't want and Fred didn't think he could do. Fred reluctantly agreed, making it clear that he was doing his son a favor. And then one more glimmer of hope emerged. In February 1965, Fred acquired the site of Steeplechase Park, one of three iconic amusement parks in Coney Island that had been in operation since around the turn of the 20th century. Steeplechase had outlived its two rivals by decades, Dreamland had been destroyed by fire in 1911, and Luna Park, also struck by fires, had closed in 1944. Fred owned a building complex and shopping area named after Luna Park not far from the original site. Steeplechase continued operations until 1964. The Tilly family had owned the park from the beginning, but several factors including high crime and increasing competition for entertainment dollars had persuaded them to sell the property. Fred, who had known that Steeplechase might become available for development, set his sights on its acquisition. The plan would be another residential development in the style of Trump Village, but a significant hurdle would need to be overcome. Changing current zoning laws from public use to private construction. While he waited for the opportunity to present itself, Fred began to lobby his old cronies for their support and started drafting his proposal. He dangled the possibility of Freddie's involvement in the ambitious project, and his oldest son, frantic to improve his position and put TWA behind him, jumped at the opportunity. He suspected it might be his last chance to prove himself to the old man. By then Linda was six months pregnant with me power and places. Fred was being passed by. He would never again pursue an original construction project. Trump Village, completed in 1964, would be the last complex ever built by Trump management. Unable to accept responsibility, much as Donald would later be, Fred blamed Freddie for the failure of Steeplechase. Eventually, Freddie blamed himself didn't help that Donald drove back to the house from Philadelphia almost every weekend. It turned out that he wasn't any more comfortable at Penn than he had been at Fordham. The work didn't interest him, and it's possible that he suddenly found himself a small fish in a big pond. 
In the 1960s, NYMA had been at the height of its enrollment a little over 500 students in grades 8 through 12 but Penn had several thousand when he attended. At the military academy, Donald had survived the first couple of years as an underclassman by using the considerable skills he'd acquired growing up in the family house. His ability to feign indifference in the face of pain and disappointment, to withstand the abuse of the bigger, older boys. He hadn't been a great student, but he'd had a certain charm, a way of getting others to go along with him that, back then, wasn't entirely grounded in cruelty. In high school Donald had been a decent athlete, a guy some people found attractive with his blue eyes and blonde hair and his swagger. He had all the confidence of a bully who knows he's always going to get what he wants and never has to fight for it. By the time he was a senior, he had enough cachet with his fellow students that they chose him to lead the NYMA contingent in the New York City Columbus Day Parade. He didn't foresee any such success at Penn and saw no reason to spend any more time there than he had to. The prestige of the degree was what really mattered anyway. During the most crucial juncture of the steeplechase deal, its unraveling, and its aftermath, Donald did a fair amount of armchair quarterbacking. Freddie, who had never developed the armor that might have helped him withstand his father's mockery and humiliation, was particularly sensitive to being dressed down in front of his siblings. When they were younger, Donald had been both a bystander and collateral damage. Now that he was older, he felt increasingly confident that Freddie's continuing loss of their father's esteem would be to his benefit, so he often watched silently or joined in. My father and grandfather were conducting a steeplechase post-mortem in the breakfast room that, on Fred's side, was acrimonious and accusatory and, on Freddy's, was defensive and remorseful. Donald casually said to his brother, as though completely unaware of the effect his words would have, maybe you could have kept your head in the game if you didn't fly out to Montauk every weekend. Freddy's siblings knew that their father had always disapproved of what was now merely Freddy's hobby. There was a tacit agreement that they wouldn't talk about the planes or the boats in front of the old man. Fred's reaction to Donald's revelation proved the point when he said to Freddy, get rid of it. The next week, the plane was gone. Fred made Freddy miserable but Freddy's need for his father's approval seemed to intensify after Marblehead and even more after the demise of Steeplechase. He'd do whatever his father told him to do in the hope of gaining his acceptance. Whether he realized it consciously or not, it would never be granted. When they first moved into the Highlander, Freddy and Linda had been concerned that the other tenants would bother the landlord's son with their complaints. Now they found themselves at the bottom of the list when they needed repairs. The windows in my parents' ninth-floor corner bedroom offered expansive southern and eastern views, but they were also vulnerable to strong gusts of wind. In addition, the Highlander had built-in air conditioners in every room that hadn't been installed properly. So condensation accumulated between the drywall and outer bricks whenever the AC was running. Over time, the built-up moisture seeped into the drywall, softening it. 
By December, the wall around the unit in my parents' bedroom had deteriorated so badly that a frigid draft constantly blew into the room. My mother tried to cover the wall around the air conditioner with plastic sheeting, but the arctic air continued to pour in. Even with the heat blasting, their bedroom was always bitterly cold. The superintendent at the Highlander never responded to their request to have a maintenance crew sent up, and the wall was never repaired. New Year's Eve 1967 was particularly inclement, but despite the rain and wind, my parents drove out east to celebrate with friends at Gurney's Inn in Montauk. By the time they were ready to drive back to Jamaica in the early hours of New Year's Day, the weather had turned even colder and the steady rain had become a downpour. When Freddie went outside to warm up the car, the battery was dead. Dressed only in his shirt sleeves, he got drenched trying to get the car to start. By the time he and Linda returned to the apartment and their wind-blown bedroom, he was sick. Between the stress of the last two years and his heavy drinking and smoking, by then he averaged two packs of cigarettes a day, Freddie was in bad shape to begin with. His cold rapidly worsened, and after a few days he wasn't getting any better as he shivered, wrapped in a blanket, unable to escape the drafts. Linda repeatedly called the superintendent but got no response. Finally she called her father-in-law. Please, Dad, she begged, there must be someone who can fix this. Maybe from another building in Jamaica Estates or Brooklyn. Freddie is so sick. My grandfather suggested that she speak to the Highlander Super again, there was nothing he could do. Because for so long their life had been lived in the confines of Fred Trump's domain, it didn't occur to either one of them to hire a handyman who wasn't on Fred Trump's payroll. That wasn't how it worked in the family, Fred's permission was sought whether it was needed or not. The wall was never fixed. A week after New Year's, Linda's father called to tell her that her mother had had a stroke. My mom didn't want to leave my father, but her mother's condition was serious, and she needed to fly down to Fort Lauderdale as soon as she could arrange child care. Not long after, Gam called my mother to tell her that Freddie was in Jamaica Hospital with lower pneumonia. Linda immediately got onto a plane and took a taxi straight to the hospital as soon as she landed. My father was still in the hospital on January 20, 1967, their fifth wedding anniversary. Undeterred by his poor health and worsening alcoholism, my mother sneaked a bottle of champagne and a couple of glasses into his room. Regardless of what was happening around them or what state her husband was in, they were determined to celebrate. Dad had been home from the hospital for only a few weeks when Linda got a call from her father. Her mother was doing better after her stroke, he told her, but he hated leaving her at the mercy of nurses while he put in full days at the quarry. The stress of work, the expense of his wife's care, and his constant worry about her were taking their toll on both of them. I'm at the end of my rope, he said. I don't see how we can continue. Although Linda didn't know exactly what her father was implying, 
he sounded so distraught she was afraid he meant that both he and her mother would be better off dead and, out of desperation, might do something about it. When she told Freddie about her parents' precarious situation, he told her not to worry and called his father-in-law to tell him he was going to help out. Quit your job, Mike. Take care of mom. Money wasn't an issue, at least not then, but Freddie wasn't sure how his father would react when he told him. Of course, Fred said. That's what you do for family. My grandfather believed that in the same way he believed it was appropriate to send your kids to college or join a country club. Even if it was of no interest to him or wasn't particularly important to him, it was simply what you do. After the steeplechase deal collapsed, there was less for Freddie to do at Trump management. He and Linda had been planning to buy a house since my brother had been born, and now, with extra time on his hands, they started to look for one. It didn't take long for them to find a perfect four-bedroom on a half-acre lot in Brookville, a beautiful, affluent town on Long Island. The move would add at least half an hour to Dad's commute, but a change of scenery and the freedom of being out of his father's building would do him some good. He assured the real estate agent that he could meet the asking price and getting a mortgage would be no problem. When the bank called a few days later to tell him his mortgage application had been rejected, Freddie was stunned. With the exception of his one year with TWA, he'd been working for his father for almost six years. He was still an executive at Trump Management, which brought in tens of millions of dollars a year free and clear. In 1967, the company was worth approximately $100 million. Freddie made a decent living, he didn't have many expenses, and there was a trust fund and a, fast dwindling, stock portfolio. The most plausible explanation was that Fred, still burned by what he considered his son's betrayal and reeling from the failure of steeplechase, had intervened in some way to prevent the transaction. My grandfather had prominent contacts and enormous accounts at Chase, Manufacturers Hanover Trust, and the other biggest banks in the city. So not only could he guarantee that Freddie would get a mortgage, he could just as easily make sure he didn't. Our family was effectively trapped in that rundown apartment in Jamaica. When June rolled around, my father was more than ready to spend the summer in Montauk again. My parents rented the same cottage, and with funds he raised by selling some of his blue-chip stocks, Dad bought a Krisovich 33, which, with its 16-foot tuna tower, was much more suited to handle the kind of deep-sea fishing he loved. He also bought another plane, this time a Cessna 206 stationaire, which had a more powerful engine and a larger seating capacity than the Piper Comanche. But the new toys weren't just for recreation. Dad had a plan. After steeplechase, he had been increasingly sidelined at Trump management, so he came up with the idea of chartering both the boat and the plane to create another source of income. If it worked out, he might be able to free himself from Trump management after all. He hired a full-time captain to run the boat charters, but on the weekends, 
when doing so would have been the most lucrative, he had the captain drive him and his friends around instead. When Linda joined them on the boat, she noticed that Freddy always drank more than everybody else, just as he had in Marblehead, which spurred increasingly intense fights between them. The increasing frequency with which Freddy flew under the influence was alarming, and as the summer of 1967 proceeded, Linda became reluctant to get onto the plane with him. The unraveling continued. By September, Dad realized that his plan wasn't going to work. He sold the boat, and when Fred found out about the plane, he got rid of that, too. At 29 years old, my father was running out of things to lose. Too much and never enough how my family created the world's most dangerous man by Mary L. Trump. Part 2 Chapter 6 Zero-sum game I woke up to the sound of Dad's laughter. I had no sense of the time. My room was very dark, and the hallway light glared bright and incongruous under my door. I slipped out of bed. I was two and a half, and my five-year-old brother was sleeping far away on the opposite end of the apartment. I went alone to see what was going on. My parents' room was next to mine, and its door was standing wide open. All of the lights were on. I stopped at the threshold. Dad had his back to the chest of drawers, and Mom, sitting on the bed directly across from him, was leaning away, one hand held up, the other supporting her weight on the mattress. I didn't immediately know what I was looking at. Dad was aiming a rifle at her, the .22 he kept on his boat to shoot sharks and he kept laughing. Mom begged him to stop. He raised the gun until it was pointing at her face. She lifted her left arm higher and screamed again, more loudly. Dad seemed to find it funny. I turned and ran back to bed. My mother corralled my brother and me into the car and took us to a friend's house for the night. Eventually my father tracked us down. He barely remembered what he'd done, but he promised my mother it would never happen again. He was waiting for us when we returned to the apartment the next day, and they agreed to try to work things out. But they kept going through the motions of their day-to-day -day lives without acknowledging the problems in their marriage. Nothing was going to get better. Things weren't even going to stay the same. Less than two miles away, in another one of my grandfather's buildings, Marianne was in trouble. Her husband, David, had lost his Jaguar dealership a couple of years earlier and still didn't have a job. Anybody who was paying attention would have realized that all was not well, but Marianne's siblings and their friends thought David Desmond was a joke, rotund and harmless. Freddie had never understood the marriage or taken his brother-in-law seriously. Marianne had been 22 when she had met David. Graduate student at Columbia studying public policy, she had planned to get a PhD, but, wanting to avoid the shame of being called an old maid by her family, Freddie included. 
She had accepted David's proposal and dropped out of school after getting her master's degree. The initial problem was that David, a Catholic, insisted that Marianne convert. Not wanting to provoke her father's anger or hurt her mother's feelings, she was terrified to ask for their blessing. When she finally did, Fred said, do whatever you want to do. She explained how very, very sorry she was to disappoint them. Marianne, I couldn't care less. You're going to be his wife. Dam didn't say anything at all, and that was that. David liked to tell Marianne that his name would be known far beyond the reach of the Trumps. Although well-educated, he didn't have any obvious skills to back up his ambition. Even so, he remained convinced that he'd find a way to succeed beyond his dreams and show them. Like Ralph Cramden without the charm, kindness, or steady job with benefits, his next big thing. Just like the car dealership, always failed or never materialized at all. It wasn't long into the marriage before David started drinking. The Desmonds lived rent-free in a Trump apartment and enjoyed the same medical insurance everyone in the family received through Trump management. But free rent and medical insurance didn't put food on the table, and they had no income. The biggest mystery, however, was why Marianne was so financially dependent on her incompetent husband. Just as it was a mystery that Elizabeth lived in a gloomy one-bedroom apartment next to the 59th Street Bridge and Freddie couldn't buy a house and his planes, boats, and luxury cars kept disappearing. My grandfather and great-grandmother had set up trust funds for all of Fred's children in the 1940s. Whether or not Marianne was entitled to the principal yet, the trusts must have generated interest. But the three oldest children had been trained not to ask for anything ever, and if my grandfather was the trustee of those trusts, they were trapped in their financial circumstances. Asking for help meant you were weak or greedy or seeking advantage over someone who needed nothing from you in return, although an exception was made for Donald. It was so frowned upon that Marianne, Freddie, and Elizabeth, in different ways, all suffered from totally avoidable deprivation. After a few years of her husband's continued unemployment, Marianne was at the end of her rope. She approached her mother, but in a way that didn't arouse suspicion. Mom, I need some change for the laundry, she would say casually whenever she went to the house. She thought nobody knew how bad it was. For Fred, once his daughter was married, she wasn't his concern, but my grandmother knew. She didn't ask questions, either because she didn't want to pry or because she wanted Marianne to have her pride. And handed her daughter a Crisco can filled with dimes and quarters that came from the washers and dryers that she'd retrieved from my grandfather's buildings. Every few days, Gam made the rounds in Brooklyn and Queens, driving her pink Cadillac convertible and wearing her fox fur stole to collect the coins. As my aunt would later concede, in a family of already tremendous wealth, those Crisco cans saved her life, without them she wouldn't have been able to feed herself or her son, David, Jr. At the very least, 
Marianne should have been able to buy groceries without having to ask my grandmother, no matter how obliquely. But no matter how dire their situation, the three oldest Trump children couldn't get anybody in their family to help them in any substantive way. After a while there seemed to be no point in trying at all. Elizabeth simply accepted her lot. Dad eventually came to believe it was what he deserved. Marianne convinced herself that not asking for or receiving help was a badge of honor. Their fear of my grandfather was so deeply ingrained that they no longer even recognized it for what it was. The situation with David Desmond eventually became untenable. He couldn't get a job, and his drinking worsened. Desperate but being very careful not to seem as if she were asking for anything, Marianne hinted to her father that David would love a place at Trump management. My grandfather didn't ask if there was a problem. He gave his son-in-law a job as a parking lot attendant at one of his buildings in Jamaica Estates. Donald graduated from the University of Pennsylvania in the spring of 1968 and went straight to work at Trump Management. From his first day on the job, my 22-year-old uncle was given more respect and perks and paid more money than my father ever had been. Almost immediately, my grandfather appointed Donald vice president of several companies that fell under the Trump management umbrella. Named him manager of a building he didn't actually have to manage, gave him consulting fees, and hired him as a banker. The reasoning for that was twofold. First, it was an easy way to put Freddie in his place while signaling to the other employees that they were expected to defer to Donald. Second, it helped consolidate Donald's de facto position as heir apparent. Donald secured his father's attention in a way nobody else did. None of Freddie's friends could understand why Donald was, in Fred's eyes, the cat's meow. But after the summers and weekends Donald spent working for his father and visiting construction sites. Fred exposed his younger son to the ins and outs of the real estate business. Donald discovered he had a taste for the seamier side of dealing with contractors and navigating the political and financial power structures that undergirded the world of New York City real estate. Father and son could discuss the business and local politics and gossip endlessly even if the rest of us in the cheap seats had no idea what they were talking about. Not only did Fred and Donald share traits and dislikes, they had the ease of equals, something Freddie could never achieve with his father. Freddie had a wider view of the world than his brother or father did. Unlike Donald, he had belonged to organizations and groups in college that had exposed him to other people's points of view. In the National Guard and as a pilot at TWA, he had seen the best and brightest, career professionals who believed there was a greater good, that there were things more important than money. Such as expertise, dedication, loyalty. They understood that life wasn't a zero-sum game. That was part of my dad's problem. Donald was as narrow and provincial and egotistical as their father. 
but he also had a confidence and brazenness that Fred envied and his older brother lacked, qualities that Fred planned to turn to his advantage. Donald's bid to replace my father at Trump management was off to a strong start, but he was still at loose ends at home. Robert was at Boston University, which enabled him to avoid service in Vietnam, and Donald and Elizabeth didn't socialize with each other. Freddie did his best to include his little brother in whatever he and his friends got up to, but it rarely went well. They were a laid-back group who loved flying out east with Freddie to fish and water ski. They found Donald's lack of humor and self-importance off-putting. Though they tried for Freddie's sake to welcome his little brother, they didn't like him. Toward the end of Donald's first year at Trump management, the tension between him and Freddie was becoming noticeable. Though Freddie tried to leave it at the office, Donald never let anything go. Despite that, when Billy Drake's girlfriend, Anna Maria, was having a dinner party, Freddie asked if he could invite his brother. The evening didn't go much better than Donald's attempted flirtation in the driveway years earlier. Shortly after the brothers arrived, raised voices drew Anna Maria from the kitchen, where she was preparing dinner. She found Donald standing inches away from his brother, flushed and pointing his finger in Freddy's face. Donald looked as though he were about to hit Freddy, so Anna Maria pushed herself between the two very tall men. Freddy took a step back and said through clenched teeth, Donald, get out of here. Donald seemed stunned, then stormed away, saying, fine. You eat the girl's roast beef, as he slammed the door on his way out. Idiot. Anna Maria called after him. She turned back to Freddy and asked, what was that about? Shaken, Freddy simply said, work stuff. And they left it at that. Things weren't getting any better at the Highlander, either. Despite my mother's fear of snakes, Dad brought home a ball python one day and put the tank into the den, forcing my mother to pass by at any time she needed to do laundry, go into my brother's room, or leave the apartment. Their fights escalated after that gratuitous bit of cruelty, and by 1970 my mother had had all she could take. She asked Dad to leave. When he came back unannounced a couple of weeks later and let himself in, she called my grandfather and insisted that the locks be changed. For once, Fred didn't object, he didn't ask any questions, and he didn't blame her. He simply told her that he would take care of it, and he did. Dad never lived with us again. My mother called Matthew Toasty, one of my grandfather's attorneys, to tell him she wanted a divorce. Mr. Toasty and his partner, Erwin Durbin, had been doing work for my grandfather since the 1950s. Even before my parents separated, Mr. Toasty had been my mother's main contact for anything having to do with me, my brother, or money. He became her confidant, in the bleak landscape of the Trump family, he stood out as a warm and supportive ally, and she considered him a friend. As genuinely kind as Mr. Toasty may have been, 
he also knew on which side his bread was buttered. Despite the fact that my mother had her own counsel, the divorce agreement might as well have been dictated by my grandfather. He knew that his daughter-in-law had no idea how much money my father's family had or what his future prospects, as the son of an exceedingly wealthy man, might be. My mother received $100 a week in alimony plus $50 a week for child support. At the time, those weren't insignificant sums, especially considering that the big expenses, such as school, camp tuition, and medical insurance, were taken care of separately. My father was also responsible for paying the rent. Because my grandfather owned the building we lived in, it was only $90 a month. I learned many years later that my brother and I each owned 10% of the Highlander, so in retrospect, charging us rent at all seems excessive. Dad's rent obligation was capped at $250, which limited our ability to move if we ever wanted to relocate to a better apartment or neighborhood. My father, the scion of a family that at the time was worth well over $100 million, agreed to pay for private school and college. But Mr. Toasty had to approve our vacations. There were no marital assets to split, so my mother's total net worth was the $600 she got every month, an amount that wouldn't change over the next decade. After expenses, there was barely enough left over for mom to contribute to her annual Christmas fund, let alone save up to buy a house. My mother got full custody of me and my brother, as was customary at the time, but visitation rights weren't specified, Mr. Trump shall be free to see, the children, on reasonable notice, at all reasonable times. In the vast majority of cases, visitation meant having the kids every other weekend and one night a week for dinner. That's eventually what my parents' arrangement evolved into, but at the beginning there were no formal rules. The steeplechase development was permanently blocked in 1969, but eventually the city purchased the land back from my grandfather. He walked away with $1.3 million in profit for having done nothing but ruin a beloved city landmark. My dad was left with nothing but the blame. Too much and never enough how my family created the world's most dangerous man by Mary L. Trump. Part 2 Chapter 7 Parallel Lines When Freddie, in 1960, and Donald, in 1968, joined Trump management, each had a similar expectation, to become his father's right-hand man and then succeed him. They had, at different times and in different ways, been groomed to fit the part, never lacking for funds to buy expensive clothes and luxury cars. The similarities ended there. Freddie quickly found that his father was unwilling to make room for him or delegate him any but the most mundane tasks. A problem that came to a head at the height of the construction at Trump Village. Feeling trapped, unappreciated, and miserable, he left to find his success elsewhere. At age 25, he was a professional pilot, 
flying 707s for TWA and supporting his young family. That would turn out to be the pinnacle of Freddie's personal and professional life. At 26 and back at Trump management, the chimerical chance for rehabilitation ostensibly offered to him at Steeplechase evaporated, and his prospects were at an end. By 1971, my dad had been working for my grandfather, with the exception of his 10 months as a pilot, for 11 years. Nonetheless, Fred promoted Donald, then only 24, to the position of president of Trump management. He'd been on the job for only three years and had very little experience and even fewer qualifications, but Fred didn't seem to mind. The truth was, Fred Trump didn't need either one of his sons at Trump management. He promoted himself to CEO, but nothing about his job description changed, he was a landlord. Fred hadn't been a developer since the failure of Steeplechase six years earlier, so Donald's role as president remained amorphous. In the early 1970s, with New York City on the brink of economic collapse, the federal government was cutting back on the FHA, in large part because of the cost of the Vietnam War. So no more FHA funding was available to Fred. Mitchell Lama, a New York State-sponsored program to provide affordable housing that funded Trump Village, also ground to a halt. As a business move, promoting Donald was pointless. What exactly was he being promoted to do? My grandfather had no development projects, the political power structure he depended on for decades was unraveling, and New York City was in dire financial straits. The main purpose of the promotion was to punish and shame Freddie. It was the latest in a long line of such punishments, but it was almost certainly the worst, especially given the context in which it happened. Fred was determined to find a role for Donald. He had begun to realize that although his middle son didn't have the temperament for the day-to-day -day attention to detail that was required to run his business, he had something more valuable. Bold ideas and the chutzpah to realize them. Fred had long harbored aspirations to expand his empire across the river into Manhattan, the holy grail of New York City real estate developers. His early career had demonstrated that he had a knack for self-promotion, dissembling, and hyperbole. But as the first-generation son of German immigrants, Fred had English as his second language and he needed to improve his communication skills he had taken the Dale Carnegie course for a reason. And it wasn't to boost his self-confidence. The course had been a failure. And there was another obstacle perhaps even more difficult to overcome, Fred's mother, as forward-thinking as she had been in some ways, was generally very austere and traditional. It was okay for her son to be successful and rich. It was not okay for him to show off. Donald had no such restraint. He hated Brooklyn as much as Freddie did but for very different reasons the bleak working-class smallness of it, the lack of potential. He couldn't get out of there fast enough. Trump management was located on Avenue Z, 
right in the middle of Beach Haven in South Brooklyn, one of my grandfather's largest apartment complexes. He hadn't made many alterations. The narrow outer office was crammed with too many desks, and the small windows admitted little light. If Donald had thought of the surrounding buildings and complexes in terms of number of units, the value of the ground leases, and the sheer volume of income that poured into Trump management every month, he would have recognized the huge opportunity. Instead, whenever he stood outside the office and surveyed the utilitarian sameness of Beach Haven, he must have felt suffocated by the sense that it was all beneath him. The future in Brooklyn wasn't what he wanted for himself, and he was determined to get out as quickly as possible. Besides being driven around Manhattan by a chauffeur whose salary his father's company paid, in a Cadillac his father's company leased to scope out properties. Donald's job description seems to have included lying about his accomplishments and allegedly refusing to rent apartments to black people, which would become the subject of a justice. Apartment lawsuit accusing my grandfather and Donald of discrimination. Donald dedicated a significant portion of his time to crafting an image for himself among the Manhattan circles he was desperate to join. Having grown up a member of the first television generation, he had spent hours watching the medium, the episodic nature of which appealed to him. That helped shape the slick, superficial image he would come to both represent and embody. His comfort with portraying that image, along with his father's favor and the material security his father's wealth afforded him, gave him the unearned confidence to pull off what even at the beginning was a charade, selling himself not just as a rich playboy but as a brilliant, self-made businessman. In those early days, that expensive endeavor was being enthusiastically, if clandestinely, funded by my grandfather. Fred didn't immediately realize the scope of Donald's limitations and had no idea that he was essentially promoting a fiction, but Donald was happy to spend his father's money either way. For his part, Fred was determined to keep money pouring into his son's pocket. In the late 1960s, for example, Fred developed a high-rise for the elderly in New Jersey, a project that was in part an exercise in how to get government subsidies, Fred received a $7.80 million. Practically interest-free loan to cover 90% of the cost of the project's construction, and in part an example of how far he was willing to go to enrich his second son. Although Donald put no money toward the development costs of the building, he received consulting fees, and he was paid to manage the property. A job for which there were already full-time employees on site. That one project alone netted Donald tens of thousands of dollars a year despite his having done essentially nothing and having risked nothing to develop, advance, or manage it. In a similar sleight of hand, Fred bought Swifton Gardens, an FHA project originally costing $10 million to build, at auction for $5.6 million. In addition, he secured a $5.7 million mortgage, which also covered the cost of upgrades and repairs, essentially paying $0 for the buildings. 
When he later sold the property for $6.75 million, Donald got all of the credit and took most of the profits. My dad's dream of flying had been taken away from him, and he had now lost his birthright. He was no longer a husband, he barely saw his kids. He had no idea what was left for him or what he was going to do next. He did know that the only way for him to retain any self-respect was to walk away from Trump management, this time for good. Dad's first apartment after he moved out of the Highlander was a studio in the basement of a brick row house on a quiet, shady street in Sunnyside, Queens. He was 32 years old and had never lived on his own. The first thing we saw when we walked through the door was a tank holding two garter snakes and a terrarium with a ball python. Another tank stocked with goldfish, and another with a few mice scrambling around in the straw, were set up on stands to the left of the snakes. I knew what the mice were for. In addition to a fold-out couch, a small kitchen table with a couple of cheap chairs, and the TV, there were two more terrariums housing an iguana and a tortoise. We called them Tomato and Izzy. Dad seemed proud of his new place, and he kept adding to the menagerie. On one visit, he took us down to the boiler room and led us to a cardboard box with six ducklings inside. The landlord had let him set up some heat lamps, creating a makeshift incubator. Just give it a quarter of a turn on the mental carburetor, my grandfather said to my father, as if that were all it would take for his son to stop drinking. As if it were just a matter of willpower. They were in the library, but for once they sat across from each other not equals exactly, never equals but as two people who had a problem to solve. Even though they might never agree on the solution. Although the medical view of alcoholism and addiction had changed drastically in the previous few decades, public perception hadn't evolved much. Despite treatment programs such as Alcoholics Anonymous, which had been around since 1935, the stigma attached to addicts and addiction persisted. Just make up your mind, Fred, my grandfather said, offering a useless platitude that Norman Vincent Peale would have approved of. The closest thing Fred had to a philosophy was the prosperity gospel, which he used like a blunt instrument and an escape hatch. It had never harmed any of his children more than it did right then. That's like telling me to make up my mind to give up cancer, Dad said. He was right, but my grandfather wholeheartedly embraced the blame the victim mentality that was still pervasive and couldn't make that leap. I need to beat this, Dad. I don't think I can do it by myself. I know I can't. Instead of asking, what can I do for you? Fred said, what do you want from me? Freddy had no idea where to start. My grandfather had never been sick a day in his life. He had never missed a day of work. He had never been sidelined by depression or anxiety or heartbreak, not even when his wife was near death. 
He appeared to have no vulnerabilities at all and therefore couldn't recognize or sanction them in other people. He had never handled Gam's injuries and illnesses well. Whenever Gam was suffering, my grandfather would say something like, everything's great. Right, toots? You just have to think positive, and then leave the room as quickly as possible, leaving her alone to deal with her pain. Sometimes Gam forced herself to say, yes, Fred. Usually she said nothing, clenched her jaw, and struggled to keep from crying. My grandfather's relentless insistence that everything was great left no room for any other feelings. We were told that dad was sick and would be in the hospital for a few weeks. We were also told that he had to give up his apartment apparently the landlord wanted to rent the place to somebody else. Fritz and I went to pack up clothes, games, and other odds and ends we'd left behind, and when we... Hi there, we're listening to the audio book of Too Much and Never Enough. Otherwise, he wouldn't have made the call in the first place. He merely wanted her to confirm very strongly that he was doing a fantastic job. When she said, not that good, Donald immediately went on offense. That's nasty, he said. She could see the sneer on his face. Then, seemingly apropos of nothing, he asked her, Marianne. Where would you be without me? It was a smug reference to the fact that Marianne owed her first federal judgeship to Donald because Roy Cohn had done him, and her, a favor all those years ago. My aunt has always insisted that she'd earned her position on the bench entirely on her own merits, and she shot back at him, if you say that one more time, I will level you. It was an empty threat. Although Marianne had prided herself on being the only person on the planet Donald ever listened to, those days were long past, which was illustrated not long after, in June 2018. On the eve of Donald's first summit with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un, Marianne called the White House and left a message with his secretary. Tell him his older sister called with a little sisterly advice. Prepare. Learn from those who know what they are doing. Stay away from Dennis Rodman. And leave his Twitter at home. He ignored all of it. The Politico headline the following day read, Trump says Kim meeting will be about attitude, not prep work. If Marianne had ever had any sway over her little brother, it was gone now. Aside from the requisite birthday call, they didn't speak much after that. While they were working on the article, the Times reporters invited me to join them for a tour of my grandfather's properties. On the morning of January 10, 2018, they picked me up in David's SUV, still adorned with its antlers and red nose, at the Jamaica train station. We started at the Highlander, where I'd grown up, and over the course of the day we traversed snow drifts and patches of ice in an effort to visit as much of the Trump empire as possible. After nine hours we still hadn't managed to see all of it. 
I had traded in my crutches for a cane by then but was still exhausted, mentally and physically, when I got home. I tried to make sense of what I'd seen. I'd always known that my grandfather owned buildings, but I'd had no idea just how many. More disturbing, my father had apparently owned 20% of some of the buildings I'd never heard of before. On October 2, 2018, the New York Times published an almost 14,000-word article, the longest in its history, revealing the long litany of potentially fraudulent and criminal activities my grandfather, aunts, and uncles had engaged in. Through the extraordinary reporting of the Times team, I learned more about my family's finances than I'd ever known. Donald's lawyer, Charles J. Harder, predictably denied the allegations, saying, the New York Times' allegations of fraud and tax evasion are 100% false and highly defamatory. There was no fraud or tax evasion by anyone. But the investigative reporters laid out a devastating case. Over the course of Fred's life, he and my grandmother had transferred hundreds of millions of dollars to their children. While my grandfather was alive, Donald alone had received the equivalent of $413 million, much of it through questionable means. Loans that he had never repaid, investments in properties that had never matured, essentially gifts that had never been taxed. That did not include the $170 million he had received through the sale of my Loans grandfather's empire. $413 million. The amounts of money the article mentioned were mind-boggling, and the four siblings had benefited for decades. He got a small loan. I got a small loan. Dad had clearly shared in the wealth early in his life, but he had had nothing left to show for it by the time he was 30. Wow. I have no idea what happened to his money. <laughs> yeah, what happened in 1992, to his money? What happened only two years after Donald's dollars. attempt to attach the codicil to my grandfather's will, effectively cutting his siblings out, the four of them suddenly needed one another. After a lifetime of their fathers playing them off against one another, they finally had a common purpose to protect their inheritance from the government. Fred had refused to heed his lawyer's advice to cede control of his empire to his children before his death in order to minimize estate taxes. That meant that Marianne, Elizabeth, Donald, and Robert would be responsible for potentially hundreds of millions of dollars of estate taxes. <laughs> In addition to dozens of buildings, my grandfather had amassed extraordinary sums of cash. His properties carried no debt and brought in millions of dollars every year. A sibling solution was to establish all county building supply and maintenance. At that point, my grandfather was effectively sidelined by his increasing dementia not that he would have objected to their scheme. And since my father was long gone, Marianne, Donald, and Robert could do whatever they wanted. They were our trustees, but there was no one to force them to fulfill their obligations to Fritz and me, and they could easily keep us out of the loop. My aunts and uncles detested paying taxes almost as much as their father did. 
It seemed the main purpose of all county was to siphon money from Trump management through large gifts disguised as legitimate business transactions, according to the article. The ruse was so effective that, when Fred died in 1999, he had only $1.9 million in cash and no assets larger than a $10.3 million IOU from Donald. After Gam's death the following year, the combined value of my grandparents' estate was said to be just $51.8 million, a laughable assertion. Especially since the siblings sold the empire for more than $700 million four years later. My grandfather's investment in Donald had been extremely successful in the short term. He had strategically deployed millions of dollars, and often tens of millions of dollars. At key moments in Donald's career. Sometimes the funds had supported the image and the lifestyle that came with it, sometimes they had bought Donald access and favors. With increasing frequency, they had bailed him out. In that like way, Fred hole. purchased the ability to bask in Donald's reflected glory, satisfied with the knowledge that none of it would have been possible without his expertise and largesse. In the long run, however, my grandfather, who had one wish, that his empire survive in perpetuity lost everything. Whenever my brother and I met with Robert to discuss my grandfather's estate, he was emphatic about honoring my grandfather's wish that we get nothing. When it came to their own benefit, however, the four surviving Trump siblings had no compunction about doing the one thing my grandfather least would have wanted. Selling it off. When Donald announced his desire to sell, nobody put up a fight. In 2004, the vast majority of the empire my grandfather had spent more than seven decades building was sold to a single buyer, Ruby Shran for $705.6 million. The banks financing the sale for Shran had assigned a value of almost $1 billion to the properties, so in one fell swoop my uncle Donald, the master dealmaker, left almost $300 million on the table. Selling the estate in bulk was a strategic disaster. The smartest thing would have been to keep Trump management intact. With practically no effort on their part, the four siblings could have earned $5 million to $10 million a year each. But Donald needed a much bigger infusion of cash. Why? Such a paltry checks. sum even if it came to him annually wasn't going to cut it. They could also have sold the buildings and complexes individually. That would have added substantially to the selling price. That process, though, would have been a lengthy one. Yeah, so what? Donald, whose Atlantic City creditors were nipping at his heels, didn't want to wait. Besides, it would have been almost impossible to keep the news of dozens of sales a secret. They needed to complete the sale in one transaction as quickly and as quietly as possible. Hmm. They succeeded on that score. 
may be the only one of Donald's real estate deals that receive no press attention. Whatever objections Marianne, Elizabeth, and Robert might have had, they kept to themselves. Even now Marianne, almost 10 years older, smarter, and more accomplished than the second youngest Trump child, deferred to him. Donald always got his way, she said. Yeah, because you gave it to him, bitch. Besides, none of them could risk waiting. They all knew where the bodies were buried because they had buried them together in all county. Split four ways, they each got approximately $170 million. For Donald, it still wasn't enough. Maybe it wasn't for any of them. Nothing ever was. When I visited Marianne in September 2018, less than a month before the article was published, she mentioned that she had been contacted by David Barstow. My cousin David, who had tracked my grandfather's old accountant Jack Mitnick, now 91, to a nursing home somewhere in Florida, believed he must have been the source of the expose. Marianne brushed the whole thing off and suggested that the article was merely about the 1990 codicil controversy. If she did speak to Barstow, though, she must have known the extent of what they were looking into all county, the potential tax fraud but she seemed unfazed by it. I wondered, now for completely different reasons, why she and Robert hadn't tried everything in their power to dissuade Donald from running for president. They couldn't possibly have thought that he, and by extension they, would continue to escape scrutiny. I met with Marianne again shortly after the article ran. She denied all of it. She was just a girl, after all. When a piece of paper requiring her signature had been put in front of her, she'd signed it, no questions asked. This article goes back 60 years. You know that's before I was a judge, she said as if the investigation had also ended 60 years before. She seemed unconcerned that there would be any repercussions. Although a court inquiry had been opened into her alleged conduct, all she had had to do to put an end to it was retire, which she did, thereby retaining her $200,000 a year pension. In the interim, she had transferred her suspicion from the geriatric Jack Mitnick to her first cousin John Walter, my grandfather's sister Elizabeth's son, who had died that January. I marveled at the ease with which Marianne jumped to that conclusion. John had worked for and with my grandfather for decades, had benefited enormously from his uncle's wealth, had been heavily involved in all county, and, as far as I knew, had always been very loyal. I thought it strange she would implicate him, although her suspicions of him worked in my favor. What I didn't know at the time is that John's obituary had neglected to mention Donald. John had always been interested in Trump family history and boastful of his connection with Trump management, so that was a remarkable omission.
come to believe a version of events that obliterated the truth and rewrote history. In fact, the vast amounts of money the siblings had possibly stolen made their fight with us over my grandfather's will and their drastic devaluation of our partnership share, which I now understood for the first time, seem pathologically petty and their treatment of my nephew Visavis our medical insurance even more cruel. Too much and never enough, how my family created the world's most dangerous man by Mary L. Trump. Part 4. The Worst Investment Ever Made. <laughs> Chapter 14. Civil Servant in Public Housing. There is a through line from the house to the Trump Tower triplex to the West Wing, just as there is from Trump management to the Trump Organization to the Oval Office. The first are essentially controlled environments in which Donald's material and eats have always been taken care of. The second, a series of sinecures in which the work was done by others and Donald never needed to acquire expertise in order to attain or retain power, which partly explains his disdain for the expertise of others. All of this has protected Donald from his own failures while allowing him to believe himself a success. Donald was to my grandfather what the border wall has been for Donald, a vanity project funded at the expense of more worthy pursuits. Fred didn't groom Donald to succeed him. When he was in his right mind, he wouldn't trust Trump management to anybody. Instead, he used Donald, despite his failures and poor judgment, as the public face of his own thwarted ambition. Fred kept propping up Donald's false sense of accomplishment until the only asset Donald had was the ease with which he could be duped by more powerful men. There was a long line of people willing to take advantage of him. In the 1980s, New York journalists and gossip columnists discovered that Donald couldn't distinguish between mockery and flattery and used his shamelessness to sell papers. That image, and the weakness of the man it represented, were precisely what appealed to Mark Burnett. By 2004, when The Apprentice first aired, Donald's finances were a mess, even with his $170 million cut of my grandfather's estate when he and his siblings sold the properties. And his own empire consisted of increasingly desperate branding opportunities such as Trump Steaks, Trump Vodka, and Trump University. All he had to do is fucking that made him an easy target for wisely. Burnett. He wouldn't have to do a fucking thing for the rest of his Both life. Both Donald and the viewers were the butt of the joke that was The Apprentice, which, despite all evidence to the contrary, presented him That's as stupid. a legitimately successful tycoon. For the first 40 years of his real estate career, my grandfather never acquired debt. In the 1970s and 80s, however, all of that changed as Donald's ambitions grew larger and his missteps became more frequent. Oh my God. Far from disaster. expanding his father's empire, everything Donald did after Trump Tower, which, along with his first project, the Grand Hyatt, could never have been accomplished without Fred's money and influence, chipped away at the empire's value.
By the late 1980s, the Trump Organization seemed to be in the business of losing money. <laughs> As Donald siphoned in untold millions away from Trump money. management yeah, in exactly. order to support the growing myth Girl, of himself as a real estate phenom and master dealmaker. Ironically, as Donald's failures in real estate grew, so did my grandfather's need for him to appear successful. Fred surrounded Donald with people who knew what they were doing while giving him the credit, who propped him up and lied for him, who knew how the family business worked. That's, that's where he gets it. The more money my grandfather that's threw at Donald, the more confidence Donald had, which led him to pursue bigger and riskier projects, which led to greater failures. Forcing Fred to step in with more help. By continuing to enable Donald, my grandfather kept making him worse, more needy for media attention and free money, more self-aggrandizing and delusional about his greatness. Although bailing out Donald was originally Fred's exclusive domain, it didn't take long for the banks to become partners in the project. At first, taken in by what they believed to be Donald's ruthless efficiency and ability to get a job done, they were operating in good faith. As the bankruptcies piled up and the bills for the reckless purchases came due, the loans continued but now as a means to maintain the illusion of success that had fooled them in the first place. It's understandable that Donald increasingly felt he had the upper hand, even if he didn't. He was completely unaware that other people were using him for their own ends and believed that he was in control. Fred, the banks, and the media gave him more leeway in order to get him to do their bidding. In the very early stages of his attempts to take over the Commodore Hotel, Donald held a press conference presenting his involvement in the project as a fait accompli. He lied about transactions that hadn't taken place, inserting himself in a way that made it difficult for him to be removed. He and Fred then used this gambit to leverage his newly inflated reputation in the New York press and many millions of dollars of my grandfather's money to get enormous tax abatements for his. Next development, Trump Tower. In Donald's mind, he has accomplished everything on his own merits, cheating notwithstanding. How many interviews has he given in which he offers the obvious falsehood that his father loaned him a mere million dollars that he had to pay back but he was otherwise solely responsible for his success? It's easy to understand why he would believe this. Nobody has failed upward as consistently and spectacularly as the ostensible leader of the shrinking free world. Donald today is much as he was at three years old, incapable of growing, learning, or evolving, unable to regulate his emotions, moderate his responses, or take in and synthesize information. Donald's need for affirmation is so great that he doesn't seem to notice that the largest group of his supporters are people he wouldn't condescend to be seen with outside of a rally. His deep-seated insecurities have created in him a black hole of need that constantly requires the light of compliments that disappears as soon as he's soaked it in. Nothing is ever enough. This is far beyond garden-variety narcissism. Donald is not simply weak, 
His ego is a fragile thing that must be bolstered every moment because he knows deep down that he is nothing of what he claims to be. He knows he has never been loved. So he must draw you in if he can by getting you to assent to even the most seemingly insignificant thing. Isn't this plane great? Yes, Donald, this plane is great. It would be rude to begrudge him that small concession. Then he makes his vulnerabilities and insecurities your responsibility, you must assuage them, you must take care of him. Failing to do so leaves a vacuum that is unbearable for him to withstand for long. If you're someone who cares about his approval, you'll say anything to retain it. He has suffered mightily, and if you aren't doing all you can to alleviate that suffering, you should suffer, too. From his childhood in the house to his early forays into the New York real estate world and high society until today, Donald's aberrant behavior has been consistently normalized by others. When he hit the New York real estate scene, he was touted as a brash, self-made dealmaker. Brash was applied to him as a compliment, used to imply self-assertiveness more than rudeness or arrogance, and he was neither self-made nor a good dealmaker. But that was how it started with his misuse of language and the media's failure to ask pointed questions. His real skills, self-aggrandizement, lying, and sleight of hand, were interpreted as strengths unique to his brand of success. By perpetuating his version of the story he wanted told about his wealth and his subsequent successes, our family and then many others started the process of normalizing Donald. His hiring and treatment of undocumented workers and his refusal to pay contractors for completed work were assumed to be the cost of doing business. Treating people with disrespect and nickel-andiming them made him look tough. Those misrepresentations must have seemed harmless at the time a way to sell more copies of the New York Post or increase the viewership of Inside Edition but each transgression inevitably led to. Another, more serious one. The idea that his tactics were legitimate calculations instead of unethical cons was yet another aspect of the myth that he and my grandfather had been constructing for decades. Though Donald's fundamental nature hasn't changed, since his inauguration the amount of stress he's under has changed dramatically. It's not the stress of the job, because he isn't doing the job unless watching TV and tweeting insults count. It's the effort to keep the rest of us distracted from the fact that he knows nothing about politics, civics, or simple human decency that requires an enormous amount of work. For decades, he has gotten publicity, good and bad, but he's rarely been subjected to close scrutiny, and he's never had to face significant opposition. His entire sense of himself and the world is being questioned. Donald's problems are accumulating because the maneuvering required to solve them, or to pretend they don't exist, has become more complicated, requiring many more people to execute the cover-ups. Donald is completely unprepared to solve his own problems or adequately cover his tracks. After all, the systems were set up in the first place to protect him from his own weaknesses, not help him negotiate the wider world.
The walls of his very expensive and well-guarded padded cell are starting to disintegrate. People with access to him are weaker than Donald is, more craven, but just as desperate. Their futures are directly dependent on his success and favor. They either fail to see or refuse to believe that their fate will be the same as that of anyone who pledged loyalty to him in the past. There seems to be an endless number of people willing to join the clack that protects Donald from his own inadequacies while perpetuating his unfounded belief in himself. Although more powerful people put Donald into the institutions that have shielded him since the very beginning, it's people weaker than he is who are keeping him there. When Donald became a serious contender for the Republican Party nomination and then the nominee, the national media treated his pathologies, his mendacity, his delusional grandiosity. As well as his racism and misogyny, as if they were entertaining idiosyncrasies beneath which lurked maturity and seriousness of purpose. Over time, the vast bulk of the Republican Party from the extreme right to the so-called moderates either embraced him or, in order to use his weakness and malleability to their own advantage, looked the other way. After the election, Vladimir Putin, Kim Jong-un, and Mitch McConnell, all of whom bear more than a passing psychological resemblance to Fred, recognized in a way others should have but did not that Donald's checkered personal history and his unique personality flaws make him extremely vulnerable to manipulation by smarter, more powerful men. His pathologies have rendered him so simple-minded that it takes nothing more than repeating to him the things he says to and about himself dozens of times a day he's the smartest, the greatest, the best to get him to do whatever they want, whether it's imprisoning children in concentration camps, betraying allies, implementing economy-crushing tax cuts, or degrading every institution that's contributed to the United States' rise and the flourishing of liberal democracy. In an article for The Atlantic, Adam Serwer wrote that, for Donald, the cruelty is the point. For Fred, that was entirely true. One of the few pleasures my grandfather had, aside from making money, was humiliating others. Convinced of his rightness in all situations, buoyed by his stunning success and a belief in his superiority, he had to punish any challenge to his authority swiftly and decisively and put the challenger in his place. That was effectively what happened when Fred promoted Donald over Freddie to be president of Trump management. Unlike my grandfather, Donald has always struggled for legitimacy as an adequate replacement for Freddie, as a Manhattan real estate developer or casino tycoon. And now as the occupant of the Oval Office who can never escape the taint of being utterly without qualification or the sense that his win was illegitimate. Over Donald's lifetime, as his failures mounted despite my grandfather's repeated and extravagant interventions, his struggle for legitimacy, which could never be won, turned into a scheme to make sure nobody found out that he's never been legitimate at all. This has never been more true than it is now, and it is exactly the conundrum our country finds itself in. 
The government as it is currently constituted, including the executive branch, half of Congress, and the majority of the Supreme Court, is entirely in the service of protecting Donald's ego. That has become almost its entire purpose. His cruelty serves, in part, as a means to distract both us and himself from the true extent of his failures. The more egregious his failures become, the more egregious his cruelty becomes. Who can pay attention to the children he's kidnapped and put into concentration camps on the Mexican border when he's threatening to out whistleblowers? Coercing senators to acquit him in the face of overwhelming evidence of guilt and pardoning Navy SEAL Eddie Gallagher. Who'd been accused of war crimes and convicted of posing for a picture with a corpse, all within the same month? If he can keep 47,000 spinning plates in the air, nobody can focus on any one of them. So That's there's it. that. That's it's just exactly a distraction. His cruelty is also an exercise of his power, such as it is. He has always wielded it against people who are weaker than he is or who are constrained by their duty or dependence from fighting back. Employees and political appointees can't fight back when he attacks them in his Twitter feed because to do so would risk their jobs or their reputations. Freddie couldn't retaliate when his little brother mocked his passion for flying because of his filial responsibility and his decency, just as governors in blue states. Desperate to get adequate help for their citizens during the COVID-19 crisis. Are constrained from calling out Donald's incompetence for fear he would withhold ventilators and other supplies needed in order to save lives. Which he did Donald anyway. learned a long time ago how to pick his targets. Donald continues to exist in the dark space between the fear of indifference and the fear of failure that led to his brother's destruction. It took 42 years for the destruction to be completed, but the foundations were laid early and played out before Donald's eyes as he was experiencing his own trauma. The combination of those two things what he witnessed and what he experienced both isolated him and terrified him. The role that fear played in his childhood and the role it plays now can't be overstated. And the fact that fear continues to be an overriding emotion for him speaks to the hell that must have existed inside the house six decades ago. Every time you hear Donald talking about how something is the greatest, the best, the biggest, the most tremendous, the implication being that he made them so. You have to remember that the man speaking is still, in essential ways, the same little boy who is desperately worried that he, like his older brother, is inadequate and that he, too, will be destroyed for his inadequacy. At a very deep level, his bragging and false bravado are not directed at the audience in front of him but at his audience of one his long-dead father. Donald has always been able to get away with making blanket statements, I know more about, fill in the blank, than anybody, believe me, or the other iteration. Nobody knows more about, fill in the blank, than me, he's been allowed to riff about nuclear weapons, trade with China, and other things about which he knows nothing. He's gone essentially unchallenged when touting the efficacy of drugs for the treatment of COVID, 
19 that have not been tested or engaging in an absurd revisionist history in which he's never made a mistake and nothing is his fault. It's easy to sound coherent and somewhat knowledgeable when you control the narrative and are never pressed to elaborate on your premise or demonstrate that you actually understand the underlying facts. It is an indictment, among many, of the media that none of that changed during the campaign, when exposing Donald's lies and outrageous claims might actually have saved us from his presidency. Yeah. On the few occasions he was they're, asked about his positions and policies, which for all intents and purposes don't really exist. And also we have a corporate media monopoly. He still wasn't expected or required corporate to make media. sense or Blame demonstrate any depth media. of understanding. Since the election, he's figured out how to avoid such questions completely. White House press briefings and formal news conferences have been replaced with chopper talk, during which he can pretend he can't hear any unwelcome questions over the noise of the helicopter. Blades. In 2020, his pandemic press briefings quickly devolved into many campaign rallies filled with self-congratulation, demagoguery, and ring-kissing. God. In them he has denied the unconscionable failures that have already killed thousands, lied about the progress that's being made, and scapegoated the very people who are risking their lives to save us despite being denied adequate protection and equipment by his administration. Even as hundreds of thousands of Americans are sick and dying, he spins it as a victory, as proof of his stunning leadership. And in the event that anybody thinks he's capable of being serious or somber, he'll throw in a joke about betting models or lie about the size of his Facebook following for good measure. <laughs> Still the news networks refuse to pull away. The few journalists who do challenge him, and even those who simply ask Donald for words of comfort for a terrified nation, are derided and dismissed as nasty. The through line from Donald's early Destructive behavior yeah, that yeah, Fred actively Elsendor. encouraged to the media's unwillingness to challenge him and the Republican Party's willingness to turn a blind eye to the daily corruption he has. Committed since January 20, 2017, have led to the impending collapse of this once great nation's economy, democracy, and health. We must dispense with the idea of Donald's strategic brilliance in understanding the intersection of media and politics. He doesn't have a strategy, he never has. Despite the fluke that was his electoral advantage and a, a victory that was at best sus- You know, I was just thinking about when I'm pressed, I'll give up. Camelot's uh, award. Camelot. Camelot Prize to journalists. Yeah, Mitch Alcindor and Robert Costa, and who's that guy? Um, oh, he's got a funny name. Interesting name. It's like two syllables. Um, shoot. Anyway, it'll come to me later. And um, for being able for the speaking, speaking out, speaking up for American interests in 
getting to the truth of this, the, the horror, the horror of this man. He's a, he's a walking demolition man, and we'll have to place on Grace Jones' uh, cover of Demolition Man. And at worst illegitimate, he never had his finger on the pulse of the zeitgeist. His bluster and shamelessness just happened to resonate with certain segments of the population. If what he was doing during the 2016 campaign hadn't worked, he would have kept doing it anyway, because lying, playing to the lowest common denominator, cheating, and sowing division are all he knows. He is as incapable of adjusting to changing circumstances as he is of becoming presidential. He did tap into a certain bigotry and inchoate rage, which he's always been good at doing. The full-page screed he paid to publish in the New York Times in 1989 calling for the Central Park Five to be put to death wasn't about his deep concern for the rule of law. It was an easy opportunity for him to take on a deeply serious topic that was very important to the city while sounding like an authority <laughs> yeah. in the influential and prestigious anyone, pages Anyone of the who lady. has doubts that this motherfucker is a racist should talk about, you know, I should do a TikTok on that um, part of history. Is um, Trump a racist? Question. Is Trump a racist? Is he a fucking ra- a fuck- There's nobody who's a bigger racist. Although he says the opposite. There's nobody who's done more for black people- Black people- Black- The blacks. As, uh, with thugla cunts like to say. Anyway, I need to go feed my- Was animals. unvarnished racism meant to stir up racial animosity in a city already seething with it? All five boys, Kevin Richardson, Antron McRae, Raymond Santana, Corey Wise, and Yusef Salam, were subsequently proven innocent by incontrovertible DNA evidence. To this day, however, Donald insists that they were guilty yet another example of his inability to change the preferred narrative contradicted by established fact. Donald takes any rebuke as a challenge and doubles die. down on the behavior that drew fire in the first place, as if the criticism is permission to do worse. Fred came to appreciate Donald's obstinacy because it signaled the kind of toughness he sought in his sons. Fifty years later, people are literally dying because of his catastrophic decisions and disastrous inaction. Million. With millions of lives at stake, he takes accusations about the federal government's Dad, failure to provide ventilators to personally, to the experts. threatening to withhold funding and life-saving equipment from states whose governors don't pay Let sufficient homage to him. That doesn't surprise me. The deafening silence in response to such a blatant display of sociopathic disregard for human life or the consequences for one's actions, on the other hand. <laughs> fills me with despair and reminds me that Donald isn't really the problem after all. This is the end result of Donald's having continually been given a pass and rewarded not just for his failures, but for his transgressions against tradition, against decency, against the law, and against fellow human beings. 
His acquittal in the sham Senate impeachment trial was another such reward for bad behavior. Lies may become true in his mind as soon as he utters them, but they're still lies. It's just another way for him to see what he can get away with. And so far, he's gotten away with everything. Too much and never enough. How my family created the world's most dangerous man by Marielle Trump. Part 4. The worst investment ever made. Epilogue. Tenth Circuit. On November 9, 2016, my despair was triggered in part by the certainty that Donald's cruelty and incompetence would get people killed. My best guess at the time was that that would occur through a disaster of his own making, such as an avoidable war he either provoked or stumbled into. I couldn't have anticipated how many people would willingly enable his worst instincts, which have resulted in government-sanctioned kidnapping of children, detaining of refugees at the border, and betrayal of our allies, among other atrocities. And I couldn't have foreseen that a global pandemic would present itself, allowing him to display his grotesque indifference to the lives of other people. Donald's initial response to COVID-19 underscores his need to minimize negativity at all costs. Fear the equivalent of weakness in our family is as unacceptable to him now as it was when he was three years old. When Donald is in the most trouble, superlatives are no longer enough, both the situation and his reactions to it must be unique, even if absurd or nonsensical. On his watch, no hurricane has ever been as wet as Hurricane Maria. Nobody could have predicted a pandemic that his own Department of Health and Human Services was running simulations for just a few months before COVID-19 struck in Washington state. Why does he do this? Fear. Donald didn't drag his feet in December 2019, in January, in February, in March because of his narcissism. He did it because of his fear of appearing weak or failing to project the message that everything was great, beautiful, and perfect. The irony is that his failure to face the truth has inevitably led to massive failure anyway. In this case, the lives of potentially hundreds of thousands of people will be lost and the economy of the richest country in history may well be destroyed. Donald will acknowledge none of this. Moving the goalposts to hide the evidence and convincing himself in the process that he's done a better job than anybody else could have if only a few hundred thousand die instead of two million. And even with people who have screwed you, Donald has said. But often the person he's getting revenge on is somebody he screwed over first, such as the contractors he's refused to pay or the niece and nephew he refused to protect. Even when he manages to hit his target, his aim is so bad that he causes collateral damage. Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York and currently the de facto leader of the country's COVID-19 response, has committed not only the sin of insufficiently kissing Donald's ass, but the ultimate sin of showing Donald up by being better and more competent. 
real leader who is respected and effective and admired. Donald can't fight back by shutting Cuomo up or reversing his decisions. Having abdicated his authority to lead a nationwide response, he no longer has the ability to counter decisions made at the state level. Donald can insult Cuomo and complain about him, but every day the governor's real leadership further reveals Donald as a petty, pathetic little man ignorant, incapable, out of his depth, and lost in his own delusional spin. What Donald can do in order to offset the powerlessness and rage he feels is punish the rest of us. He'll withhold ventilators or steal supplies from states that have not groveled sufficiently. If New York continues not to have enough equipment, Cuomo will look bad, the rest of us be damned. Thankfully, Donald doesn't have many supporters in New York City, but even some of those will die because of his craven need for revenge. What Donald thinks is justified retaliation is. In this context, mass murder. It would have been easy for Donald to be a hero. People who have hated and criticized him would have forgiven or overlooked his endless stream of appalling actions if he'd simply had somebody take the pandemic preparedness manual down from the shelf where it was put after the Obama administration gave it to him. If he'd alerted the appropriate agencies and state governments at the first evidence the virus was highly contagious, had extremely high mortality rates, and was not being contained. If he'd invoked the Defense Production Act of 1950 to begin production of PPE, ventilators, and other necessary equipment to prepare the country to deal with the worst-case scenario. If he'd allowed medical and scientific experts to give daily press conferences during which facts were presented clearly and honestly. If he'd ensured that there was a systematic, top-down approach and coordination among all of the necessary agencies. Most of those tasks would have required almost no effort on his part. All he would have had to do was make a couple of phone calls, give a speech or two, then delegate everything else. He might have been accused of being too cautious, but most of us would have been safe and many more of us would have survived. Instead, states are forced to buy vital supplies from private contractors. The federal government commandeers those supplies, and then FEMA distributes them back to private contractors, who then resell them. While thousands of Americans die alone, Donald touts stock market gains. As my father lay dying alone, Donald went to the movies. If he can in any way profit from your death, he'll facilitate it, and then he'll ignore the fact that you died. Why did it take so long for Donald to act? Why didn't he take the novel coronavirus seriously? In part because, like my grandfather, he has no imagination. The pandemic didn't immediately have to do with him, and managing the crisis in every moment doesn't help him promote his preferred narrative that no one has ever done a better job than he has. As the pandemic moved into its third, then fourth month, and the death toll continued its rise into the tens of thousands.
press started to comment on Donald's lack of empathy for those who have died and the families they leave behind. A simple fact is that Donald is fundamentally incapable of acknowledging the suffering of others. Telling the stories of those we've lost would bore him. Acknowledging the victims of COVID-19 would be to associate himself with their weakness, a trait his father taught him to despise. Donald can no more advocate for the sick and dying than he could put himself between his father and Freddy. Perhaps most crucially, for Donald there is no value in empathy, no tangible upside to caring for other people. David Korn wrote, everything is transactional for this poor broken human being. Everything. It is an epic tragedy of parental failure that my uncle does not understand that he or anybody else has intrinsic worth. In Donald's mind, even acknowledging an inevitable threat would indicate weakness. Taking responsibility would open him up to blame. Being a hero being good is impossible for him. The same could be said of his handling of the worst civil unrest since the assassination of Martin Luther King, Jr. This is another crisis in which it would have been so easy for Donald to triumph. But his ignorance overwhelms his ability to turn to his advantage the third national catastrophe to occur on his watch. An effective response would have entailed a call for unity, but Donald requires division. It is the only way he knows how to survive my grandfather ensured that decades ago when he turned his children against each other. I can only imagine the envy with which Donald watched Derek Chauvin's casual cruelty and monstrous indifference as he murdered George Floyd. Hands in his pockets, his insouciant gaze aimed at the camera. Yeah, I can only imagine that Donald wishes bet, it had been his knee Trump. on Floyd's neck. He's doing it for Trump. Instead, Donald Please withdraws Trump. to his comfort zone's Twitter, Fox News, casting blame from afar, protected by a figurative or literal bunker. He rants about the weakness of others even as he demonstrates his own. But he can never escape the fact that he is and always will be a terrified little boy. Donald's monstrosity is the manifestation of the very weakness within him that he's been running from his entire life. For him, there has never been any option but to be positive, to project strength, no matter how illusory, because doing anything else carries a death sentence. My father's short life is evidence of that. The country is now suffering from the same toxic positivity that my grandfather deployed specifically to drown out his ailing wife, torment his dying son, and damage past healing the psyche of his favorite child, Donald J. Trump. Everything's great. Right, toots? In this revelatory, authoritative portrait of Donald J. Trump and the toxic family that made him, Mary L. Trump, a trained clinical psychologist and Donald's only niece. Shines a bright light on the dark history of their family in order to explain how her uncle became the man who now threatens the world's health, economic security, and social fabric. Now listen to the audiobook of Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man by Mary L. Trump.
Just, uh... So yeah, this is great. Um, this should be part of the new national curriculum. Hashtag new national curriculum if you want to see uh, my other suggestions. As uh, you know, I've been a teacher all my life, a journalist. So you can consider this podcast kind of a teaching. <laughs> Trista's teaching. Oxy, get a free Oxford tutor. Oxford psychology tutor. In fact, I've asked Mary Trump if she. She could be my mentor, would like to be my mentor. And, uh, you know, I'm geofence, so probably most like, most definitely hasn't seen it. Um, also, you know, swamps. She is a public figure. Everybody go check out her podcast. She also has like awesome people like Brian Karam on, on her podcast. Maybe I can um, maybe I can ask to do some cross promotion since I'm covering her book. And yeah, get the uh, get the real. Wonder if she's. Uh, maybe I, if she doesn't already have an audio book, and if she would like a woman to read her book, that'd be awesome. Then maybe I can, uh, oh, so I can do, I can offer, offer my services as a Oxford University press um, voice artist. Recording, voice recording artist. So maybe, she, and uh, you know, I, I don't know even if she to do some research. Like, has she already done it in her voice? You know, that's that's what people really like best. But if she doesn't want to do it, or would rather I do it. Professional voice recording artist, Oxford University. Um, I am the one of the voices on uh, the um, doing some gardening. My mum's she's Tama. Yeah, so anyway, I'll be doing that. Hope you guys. Well, obviously survived Trump virus, and uh, you know one of my stand-up comedy jokes about this is that uh, um, 
I have two words for you sons of bitches, for that son, for them sons of bitches. Because, you know, as a uh, medical assistant, I was a medical assistant in training. And I was just going to start my internship when Mr. Assface Nazi Dump said no to PPP. There was no way in hell I would do my an internship in that environment. Total vote of no confidence on my part in the government, the American government at that time.